12 o'clock at night. Piper said, Nature Boy, I'm coming to Vegas. I'm sorry. Let's make up. I said, Hot Rod, I got two live ones. You can have them all night long. And look what's left of the Hot Rod. <laughs> now, Dean Malenko, you non-charismatic, boring block of ice, are you going to give me a rematch? Because that's what I want. <laughs> Medusi, do you realize what's happened here tonight? This is something you put your career on the line. Do you have any idea as to the gravity of that? Well, apparently, I'm not going to get an answer from her, Tony. Well, I can't say I blame her, really. Blame her alone. Members of the NWR Sting has come down from the top of the MGM Grand. And Sting single-handedly has run up. Oh, who do, oh, oh my head. Hello, my name is Bob Bamber and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast going back in the time machine of June of 1997 for Volume 2 of this month's show. Four volumes for you this month. Volume 1 takes us to the WWF looking at King of the Ring. Volume number 3 to ECW looking at Wrestlepalooza and when we eventually get around to taping it. Volume number 4 will take us to our latest step looking at boxing and the second fight, Mike Tyson versus Evander Holyfield. We're here in Volume number 2 to discuss WCW and the Great American Bash preview. I'm being joined by Rory McNamara. Rory, good morning. Morning all. And making his return to all things wrestling on this show, Tom Martin. Tom, good morning. Hold the pops. I, I am back. Um, yeah, great to be here. Good morning to you both. Indeed. Tom, kick us off with the news. Okay, so following a disastrous match on the June 9th Nitro, Kevin Nash and Roddy Piper had an altercation backstage. The match was ruined by a series of miscommunications and seemingly Piper not doing anything according to plan and a match that finished far earlier than it should have. Backstage, it's said that Nash kicked the door down of Piper's locker room before knocking him over with an open palm shot, which is basically a slap. After Piper got a kick in, the situation was diffused by Flair, Hall, Six and Piper's bodyguard. While there was some heat on Piper for his actions in the ring, nothing big came of the incident. In media interviews later in the month, Eric Bischoff was very diplomatic. While Kevin Sullivan did return on television this month, the booking decisions have been left in the hands of Terry Taylor and, unofficially, Kevin Nash. It's said that Bischoff trusts Nash's judgment to the point where they both discuss decisions with each other, something indicative of a lack of structure at the top. Taylor is the man formerly in charge, and it's said that he's a big improvement in terms of organisation compared to Sullivan. Sullivan will be facing Chris Benoit in a retirement match next month, when he loses, he'll be moved backstage, but it's not clear if he'll return as head booker. Randy Savage defeated Diamond Dallas Page in the main event of another strong Great American Bash pay-per-view. The show featured the singles debut of, debut of Kevin Green, who looked very impressive in a win against Steve McMichael. Piper and Nash were able to stay on the same page into their tag match alongside Flair and Hall, after Flair scarpered Hall pinned Piper cleanly. So apologies, after Flair scarpered, Hall pinned Piper cleanly. Elsewhere, there were wins for Ultimate Dragon, 
Harlem Heat, Conan, Glacier and Chris Benoit. Medusa's in-ring career is over after losing to Akira Hokuto. The June 9th Nitro wasn't the only show this month to feature a strange finish. In that one, the finish was called about six minutes early. Well, that was the week after an intended 20-minute Hall and Flair match got cut to less than 10 after Flair blew up. On the pay-per-view, they had the opposite problem, running long to the point where the show went off the air around 10 seconds after the finish of the main event. Speaking of Flair and Piper, while there's a memo not to call either of them or Hogan old, apparently both Flair and Piper can be called fossils. Despite rumours that the mystery man on the June 30th Nitro could have been Mike Tyson or even Shawn Michaels, it appears the debut was for Kurt Hennig. Hennig made a low-key entrance at the conclusion of the show that also featured the debut of former ECW champion Raven, who sat silently in the crowd. It's expected that either one of them could end up joining the NWO, and it's likely that Hennig will be Dallas Page's mystery partner at next month's pay-per-view. Buy rates for Spring Stampede and Slamboree both did around 0.6, despite the loaded card in May. WCW's numbers still barely move unless Hogan is on the card. Kevin Nash said in an interview he'd love for Shawn Michaels to be in WCW, although doesn't think Vince would let it happen. Nash says he still talks to McMahon every couple of months. Speaking of Vince, Ric Flair apparently had talks with the WWF earlier this year, but apparently Vince wasn't interested. Flair has reportedly signed a new contract with WCW. And Kevin Green was apparently in a bit of hot water with the media in the Carolinas after skipping some early season work to participate in Nitros before the pay-per-view. Just a reminder quickly that we are on Patreon for five bucks a month if you'd like early access to our shows or just to say thank you for us contributing to your podcasting lives with the highs and lows of wrestling from the mid to late 90s. You can do so for five bucks a month and get early access to shows like our WWF and ECW shows this month, although admittedly this month it was only 24 hours early. You can find out more information at patreon.com forward slash wrestling20rs, links in the podcast description. And on our website, onto the news for the month on June the 2nd with War and Nitro back to being Head, head to head for the entire month, Nitro 3.2 to Rules 2.7. The night after King of the Ring, Nitro 3.4 to Rules 2.2. On June the 16th, the night after the Great American Bash, Nitro 3.3 to Rules 2.4. On June the 23rd, Nitro 3.2 to Rules 2.4. And we will bring you June 30th numbers next month. Nitro begins on the 2nd of June with a cold open of Scott Hall and six in the ring. Scott says they are here because fans complain they're not getting enough of the NWO. They think Flair, a worn out recording of your favourite song, is a way of recovering from his recent beatdowns but they call him out anyway. Instead, they get JJ Dillon. He's just spoken to Flair and the Nature Boy is on his way to the arena. Flair has a match tonight but not a rematch with Six. It's a one-on-one with Hall. Scott doesn't seem happy, but if he doesn't face Flair, he'll have to leave the tag team belts on Double J's desk. Our opening bout is Alex Wright versus Glacier. Wright actually shows some decent heel mannerisms in this one, but loses in short order to a karate kick. Afterwards, Glacier takes a beating from Mortis and Wrath. Wright himself wants in, but Mortis accidentally nails him with a kick. Glacier eventually fends off the heels alone. Buff Bagwell versus Joe Gomez is next. The stuff wins easily with the blockbuster. Hugh Morris is here, but Conan immediately jumps in from behind. 
A groggy Hugh still makes it to the ring though to face Prince Iukea. The Prince gets a quick three count with a roll up. Conan talks Hugh, taunts Hugh from the R way. Gene talks to Double J. He tells us that the committee have decided that the Steiners are the number one contenders to the tag team titles. Harlem Heat and Cherry Sharp had to angrily accost him over this. Dylan tells them they will have to prove their worth. Darren Dallas Page narrates his own video package of him training at the power plant. He didn't win any of his first 79 matches and everyone had him pecked as a loser. Yet they didn't know how badly he wanted to succeed. The Great American Bash, he'll beat Savage again. The Steiners take on the NWO Japan of Masahiro Chono and the Great Muta. This match is given a lot of time and is typically very good indeed. Harlem Heat interfere and, rip, and hit Rick in the back with a chair of the outside, which the camera manages to miss. Muta is able to pin him with a leg hook. A B-suited Flair is here to chat with Gene. He doesn't know if he can beat Hall, but he wants to find out. He then turns into Crazy Rick and shouts tonight about a million times for wildly strutting around. Must have been some great hospitality on his Leah jet. Malenko is up against the anti-WCW rebel VK Wall Street. The latter gets a surprising amount of offence but Dean still kick wins with the Cloverleaf. Jarrett cuts the promo afterwards and has the nerve to call Malenko uncharismatic. He wants a match for the US title next week which Dean accepts. Cyclope and Damien are the opponents for Harlem Heat. The Steiners get payback with chair shot to Booker. Damien then pins him with a top rope splash. Chris Benoit needs to defeat the Barbarian in our next match in order to get to Kevin Sullivan. In a very hard-hitting contest, Benoit does indeed get the victory via the crossface. Gene Oakland has both Benoit and Jimmy Hart with him. Chris asks after Sullivan, but Hart tells him he now has to go past step number two. This time, another death match with Meng at the bash. Here comes the main event of Hall vs Flair. The crowd are molten for Nate. The match is fine. It rolls along until the inevitable sixth interference. Randy Anderson calling for the bell after Hall hits Flair with the belt. They continue their assault until Mongo chases them off. Savage drags a reluctant Gene to the ring for an impromptu interview. That's to kill some time here as Flair and Hall went a lot shorter than they were planning. Savage tells us that he's the greatest wrestler who has ever lived. Grabs Gene by the tie and challenges him. JJ Dillon hurries to the ring to break this up. He lays down the law to Savage who then threatens him too. Dillon has lost all respect that he ever had for Savage and with that macho man slaps and slogs him with punches. Bischoff and security run out, out to pull Savage off him. Bischoff gets on the mic and accuses Double J of provoking Macho. DDP, wherever you are, snap into this. The June 9th edition of Nitro begins as the Macho Man's limo appears. Liz emerges, but before Savage can even get out, DDP shows up and kicks the window in. Liz closes the door on Paige's shoulder and then the limo escapes. Our in-ring action opens with a six-man tag between Ultimate Dragon, Super Kalo and Juventud Guerrero vs Psychosis, La Parker and the debuting Silver King. Dragon gets the win with his sleeper, La Parker goes nuts with a chair after the match. Luger is out to talk to Gene. He wants Hogan's word that Hollywood will be teaming up with Rodman to face him and Giant at Bass at the beach. Furthermore, Luger has been discussing with JJ Dillon the fact that Hogan hasn't defended his title since February. Luger will be taking on Hogan tonight. It's not made clear whether the belt or not was on the line, but it turns out Luger screwed that up. Here's the heel of all heels, Alex Wright facing Chris Jericho. 
Sadly, a beach ball and the crowd gets more attention. There are noticeable boring chants too. Alex rolls through on a crossbody and pins Jericho with his feet on the ropes. Akira Hokuto versus Malia Hasaka is next. Hokuto wins easily with a vicious Northern Lights bomb. She continues the assault after the bell, but Medusa rushes out to make the save with three German suplexes. The Steiners are interviewed by Gene, but Harlem Heat quickly interrupt and they rock all over the arena. The fans are very into this. Mongo is out to take on Conan, but from nowhere, Green jumps from from behind. Again, this gets a very strong reaction. We cut back to the ring to see Conan lying in the ring with a broken broomstick by his side. Hogan and Luger is supposedly happening now. Hogan, though, won't face him until he works out. I only wrestle when I want to, he says. Luger comes down to the ring anyway and we get a stare down. Hogan says there's no way Luger could ever beat him. Lex has none of that though. He slugs Bischoff and the match is on. The Wolfpack try to get in but Luger sees them off. He goes for the rack and Randy Anderson calls for the bell. Luger has beaten Hogan cleanly. Match was indeed non-title and as soon as the contest is over the NWO destroy Luger and Hogan drops the leg on him three times. Bischoff gets a mic and lays down next to Hogan. Hogan made Gordon his promise to rob the bod that he was going to beat up Luger. At Bash at the Beach he will do so again and the Giant can expect the same treatment. JJ Dillon is in the ring with Gene. He's fining Savage $50,000 for last week's assault. A suspension will play right into his hands though so that won't happen. At Bash at the Beach the contest against Paige is now an unsanctioned lights out match. Matro appears in the crowd. He says he will have to pay another 50k because he's planning on attacking JJ again. DDP isn't having that though. He's in the ring and he wants to do it right now. Sarage accepts and makes his way to the squared circle and DDP dives right onto him. Security tried to separate them and we go to a break. We'll have to wait for the PPV after all. Lee Marshall is in Chicago course he is. Might also be appearing on the WCW hotline later that night that's recorded from the arena they're in. Malenko defends the US title against Jarrett. Deborah distracts the ref and Eddie Guerrero jumps the barricade and hits a frog splash on Dean while leaving his sling as a memento. Jarrett slips on the figure four and Malenko submits. Jarrett is the new US champion. Jimmy Hart introduces Benoit's step number three. It's Kevin Sullivan himself. He calls out Benoit now. Chris is only too happy to oblige and they start to brawl. The face of fear joined the beatdown and even Jacqueline gets in some shots. Our main event is the Outsiders against Piper and Flair. Not much doing here. Before too long, Six of course interferes and we get the now standard disqualification. The Horsemen hit the ring followed by the NWO's lesser lights and here's Kevin Green. The Heat try to come down but the Steiners stop them. Glacier has turned up. Mawson Wrath follows slowly behind. Even the combatants from the opening six man tag are here and Sullivan and Meng and Barbarian. Sullivan and Page brawl but Hogan lays waste to Page and Flair. It's mayhem everywhere. And now Sting comes down from the rafters. He stares out the NWO then goes wild with the bat. He grabs the bat to the prone DDP and in breathtaking visual winches Paige all the way up to the roof with him. You know what Hollywood? Look at this. That piece of garbage thinks he wants to get into the ring with you and Well you know something brother. Dirty dog. Blood brother. 
Dennis Rod the Bod was watching tonight. And I told him I was going to be a Luger in the Giant 2. Well, I'm sorry, Rod the Bod, but I'll make it up to you. <laughs> hey, Luger Giant, you want a piece of that? You want a piece of the Giant? You want a piece of the Giant? You're going to get it. Hot Rod, I can't wait. This is the man. Do you love him or what? So a couple of things to pick up on uh, on the TV before we hit the pay-per-view. I mean, nothing really from show number one other than the fact that Jeff Jarrett accused someone for lacking charisma, um, <laughs> you know, which is probably the most noteworthy thing on that show. Uh, but on to show number two, um, quite a bit happening. So we'll start with uh, the middle of the show. Well, slightly early in the show. We get an interview with Lex Luger who comes out and is interviewed by Minji in Oakland. And Luger says that the, the championship committee, call them what they will, has said that Hulk Hogan hasn't defended his title since February. So the crowd popped for that, basically on the impression that Luger had a match with Hogan, and reading between the lines, it was going to be a title match. Now, apparently, as much as when I was watching it, I was thinking, this is WCW being a right bunch of assholes, basically trying to insinuate there's a title match from the recent, not like they've not got previous for that. Uh, apparently, that was just a fuck up from Luger. He wasn't meant to imply or you know let the audience infer that the title might be on the line. Anyway. That leads to the beginning of the second hour with Luger against Hogan, not for the title. The match was about six, seven minutes long, of which it was spliced in the middle with a, a commercial break. Uh, we're not really going to discuss the match. I think, Rory, my, the, my big reason for bringing this up is what follows, which was Luger won the match. Hogan submitted cleanly for what we reckon was the first clean submission victory over Hogan in 16 years, certainly of him tapping out as opposed to him passing out. Uh, in uh, in December against Piper, um, but the quick NWO beatdown afterwards, and then Roy two minutes later, Hogan and Bischoff are, are happy as Larry and just brushing off another clean Hogan victory like it doesn't matter. If you're going to lose, lose like that, I guess. What a bizarre segment this was. This is Hogan's way of showing ass, I guess, without really doing so, giving Luger a win. In a match where Luger, don't, I don't seem to remember him getting any offense in there whatsoever until he went to the rack. And then, as you say, he brushes it off. All the NWO hit the ring. He leg drops Luger about 5,000 times. And then, not only do him, him and Bischoff have a nice little chat together, they lay down in the ring. It's a nice work if you can get it, isn't it? I don't know who this helps. Well, I do. It helps Hogan, but you know. <laughs> I mean, in theory, it helps Luger as well, in theory. Um, I mean, you know, for, for once it was one of those things where, like, Hogan was being a bit of a dick. I don't know actually how much damage it did to Luger. It's not kind of like the Piper one so much, as in, like, Piper won the match cleanly. Hogan said, no, nah, it never happened, and nobody really responded. In this situation, you know, Hogan was bullish, but only after an NWO beatdown on Luger. I suppose there's that. Um, but, yeah, it, it, in terms of... What could have been a massive moment, Hogan passing out in the rack, it was uh, a bit thrown out there. Tom, what do you think? Yeah, very much what you guys have said, really. It, it felt like a way of pushing the NWO agenda. Um, but I, 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 what confuses me about it is why have Luger get the win at all? There's just not, I, I guess on paper, like you said, on paper it makes sense because 
it means that he's got a win over Hogan, where someone, you know, he hasn't tapped out in 16 years. But then it was so quickly squashed by what happened after it with the beatdown, etc. What, what was the point? Because it's not as if the fans are going to really remember that. Because, and this, this is something that I've found from, from this month of watching this WCW stuff, is just the NWO agenda is pushed so hard. Everything else almost seems to think, well, that, even if that doesn't make sense, that, uh, if, even if people are going to ask questions, don't worry, because what they want is the NWO in the ring at the end lying, lying around with each other. So, and we can all throw stuff at them. So that's basically where I've gone with it, is that they just thought, sod, sod it, let's just not even worry about the sense of it, let's just pretend it didn't happen. And the decision for Hogan to, to tap out was made some time ago. But it was, yeah, it was strange, strange booking. Yeah, I almost wonder whether it would better have, you know, be careful what you wish for, getting a clean finish and then asking for a, a dirty finish. But I almost wonder whether it would have been cleaner, had uh, cleaner, more simple, had Luger have got Hogan in the rack and then the NWO would have jumped in the ring and broken it up. I think mm-hmm. one that would have made a tad, I know, oh, well, to a point, if I, if I follow the, the story of the match, Luger actually beat them up a bit and then put Hogan in the rack. If you'd have you spun that around a bit, Luger picks up Hogan in the rack and then the NWO beat him up. That makes a little bit more sense that you can, you know, I, I just don't think it makes sense to have Hogan passing out in Luger's move now. Like, isn't that the thing you build towards? Um, so I don't know what, what that necessarily means. But yeah, it's just one of those things like Hogan can... Hogan can say he lost cleanly you know, twice a year. He can say I lost cleanly to Piper. I lost cleanly to Luger. It's like, well, you did, but like for, for such for what should have been in both instances massive moments, this one was forgotten about three minutes later. That's the presentation thing they could do with working on. Um, but yeah, in, in theory at least, at some point Hogan's going to have to start defending his title again on pay per views. In theory, um, and that is a very clear signpost of well, Luger's got a clean victory over Hogan. Therefore, here's his here's the reason why he deserves the shot. There is that, but it, you know, I figured if I figured we'd have been sat here talking about Luger pin, defeating Hogan cleanly, I feel like it should have been a much bigger deal than this, and and that's where we're at. Anyway. Let's move on to later in the show. So we get to what was, well, what was the main event? Uh, Ric Flair and Roddy Piper against Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Um, Rory, what do you think of, of all of this? This was ugly as sin. Uh, two major takeaways from this. One, WCW really need to watch putting pay-per-view main events on free TV the week before the pay-per-view. I think that's something I need to bear in mind. Buy rates, buy rates. And secondly, this was a complete disaster. I don't really know what Piper was playing at. I'm well aware that he has his creative control card, which he likes to play pretty much every week. Rabbits on about nonsense, but everyone seems to love him for it. In the ring, however, he doesn't have that, he doesn't have that buffer. This was six or seven minutes, but nobody knew what they was doing. Just before they went to the break, all four of them were stood around in their ring asking, well, what do we do now? And when you've got four people in there who've been working for a combined total of decades, that should never be allowed to happen. So, as you say, Bob, in the end, the fact they just, what we use one of our favourite phrases here, called an audible and went to the finish after five minutes was a, was a bit of a mercy killing. It was ugly, ugly, ugly. Yeah. Um, it was just weird, wasn't it? I mean, you know, like, they, they, they started the match and I... 
I think the the idea to begin with, as as a lot of tag matches tend to start, we'll start with all four guys in the ring and then we'll settle it down. Um, and for whatever reason, because generally the, the the pattern we see with Piper in tag matches with Flair, we've seen a few of them now, admittedly one of them subsequent to this one. Um, admittedly, the pattern is generally that, that Flair will do most of the legwork and Piper will, uh, will stand in the corner. And for whatever reason, and there are about two or three occasions where Nash kind of worked Piper towards his corner, Piper's corner, knocked him down, basically, right there, done it, right, let's start the match now. And for whatever reason, Piper was just like, ah, fuck it, let's just carry on fighting. Um, so I don't quite know who is communicating what. I mean, Piper, amongst other things, you talk about a guy that's got creative control, he's also quite liable just to do his own thing in the ring, come what may. Um, and yeah, like there was... Flair was working Hall, and that, that looks okay, but clearly, as we saw in this match, and as we saw at the pay-per-view, Flair's idea was to kind of get spun off with six. Um, you almost wonder whether this was the match, they, the, the match at the pay-per-view was the match they were intending to do on this show. Um, Flair got spun off with six, um, and but Piper just wouldn't stay down, essentially, and, and for what they had planned, which I think was something like 12, 13-minute main event, got cut short to about six minutes, something like that. Um, but as is the problem, and not for the first time in uh, in June, we had the same thing the previous week, WCW find themselves in a situation where all of a sudden they've got a, a three or four minute show closing angle that now has to go ten minutes. Um, but Rory, unlike the first show of the month where Savage and Oakland did a pretty good job of essentially trying to stretch out a long segment, I actually kind of thought the the post-match angle here, as as wild and as long as it was, was kind of just really, really good, even though it was just quite a simple, just arena-wide brawl with about 20 different guys. Sometimes that's all you need to see when you've got a pay-per-view to sell. Let's have people beating each other up. If you want to see more of it, tune into the pay-per-view in six days' time. Works for, you know... T- time on it and it worked perfectly even if they did have to fill eight or nine minutes and yes it got repetitive there's only so many worked punches anybody can sit down and watch until we had the big Denim one towards the end but it was great I love that everybody who'd been on the show was actually in there trying to get a piece even the people who'd been involved in the, the six man tag or the, uh, the Mexican guys who most people what was the guy's name Silver King I'd never heard of him before even he was in there to mock for the camera a couple of times so yes they Probably panicked here a bit, but Sonic just sent everybody out there, punch each other for eight minutes until the fans get to see what they're really here to see. But uh, it worked, they covered it well, I thought. Yeah, and this, you know, I'm not sure it was an excellent finish to that angle. Um, The idea was really good, but it wasn't shot particularly well. Basically, Sting just drops in from the rafters. Um, this at this point, kind of most guys are in the ring, and you know, Savage is back. Savage has come out. Hogan's gone away, and I think Hogan had come back by this point. Um, so Sting gets at ringside next to Page, who'd been down by Hogan. Actually, Hogan must have come back. Um, and Sting comes in and basically just has his baseball bat in place and starts fighting off people. Nash and Norton come in and wear a couple of shots. Um, and then basically the idea, and we talk about them, the, the, the fucking up cues and things, the idea was let's show something else while Sting rigs himself back up, but also was the big 
show closing finish was that Sting was Sting was going to hook up Dallas Page to his, his rig as well, so that when they cut to the wide angle, Sting would be repelled back to the ceiling, but would take Page with him. Um, unfortunately, Rory, they weren't smart enough not to follow the 15 seconds that Sting needed to hook himself up to Page. So it's a bit signposted. It was. I think the phrase is letting light in on magic, isn't it? However, I think they atoned for it by capturing the visual of Sting disappearing into the rafters with DDP. That fantastic, I'm seeing it now, that fantastic camera shot held underneath, you just see Sting disappearing away. That was great. So I think they just about got away with what was otherwise or could have been an embarrassing snafu. And they'll, you know, they'll be able to show that in future video package and they can edit around it. So I suppose that's fair enough. All in all, I mean, uh, yeah, we'll talk about stuff that I think if you're listening to the show, you need to watch. I think that 20-minute segment very, very much in that discussion in terms of just, you know, a crazy main event and then a, and I, you know, maybe it's just me, you know, like I, I got drawn in by a, by a, a 12-man ring, ring-wide brawl in WWF involving Savio Vega's new crew and Crush's new crew. So maybe I'm just a sucker for big kind of wild brawls, but there was that, and then. Tom, we get backstage after the show. Obviously, the cameras have finished rolling. Um, and as is the way, happened to the WWF this month as well, you get two of the, the bigger personalities, two of the guys that are more protected, two of the guys that don't have much to lose because they, well, because they can't because they're so strongly protecting the company. And we get a bit of an altercation between Piper and Nash, which I think, thankfully for WCW, didn't seem to spill over into the pay for you or later into the month. Yeah, interesting one this, isn't it? Because there's a lot of backstage politics that are being talked about um, at this time in WCW, who's in charge of things, and there's a lot of, lot of control, you know, um, being given to, to wrestlers who, in a in a business that works and functions properly, perhaps wouldn't be given the level of control that they're given. So there's a lot of egos, and this spills into the storylines, but obviously it also spills backstage as well. Um, if it was a stand-up one-on-one fight between the two of them. I think I probably would fancy Nash, but Piper has, has apparently got a bodyguard, so um, that's, that's to his benefit. And also, Piper's just a fucking nutcase. So, but, you know, this, I, I'm surprised there isn't more of this that happens, and maybe there is, we just don't hear about it. But like you say, it was very um, interesting to, to, uh, to hear about this one because it gives you an insight into how chaotic things must be with people with so much ego and, and uh, wanting things a certain way. Now, Kevin Nash probably shouldn't be doing this, um, but then what was Piper doing in the match as well? So, there's, you know, there's no, one, there's no, no one's innocent here. Yeah, if this was... Uh, I feel like if this was baseball, you'd just pick up the phone, you'd send Piper to the WWF, Shawn Michaels to WCW, and everyone would be happy. Because um, I think WWF, they want Piper at the moment, given his contractual situation, amongst other things. But yeah, it's just... Uh, it is the lay of the land. You've got Nash, who has no formal creative control, but in many ways seems to have the most influence of almost anybody in WCW that isn't Hulk Hogan right now. And you've got Rodney Piper, who has creative control over his own stuff. And so, you know, I, you know, I, I think you, you watch the match back that that preceded the the altercation, and it's pretty clear that uh, it's pretty clear. I think that Piper was probably the guy in the wrong. Like, as in Nash was trying to settle it down, you know, and the the, the bit we didn't speak about during the match was the, you know, it, it seemed like at one point Nash was trying to kind of 
can't pipe her down and pipe her low blowed him. Um, so you've got to sell that. And then Razor was trying to deal with Piper and Piper low blowed him as well. And it's like, oh, fuck, this is going on. Um, but yeah, Rory, I, I think it's just, you know, but we've seen it both sides of the divide this month, both sides of the, uh, you know, the, the north-south divide. Um, you, you get guys that are well-paid, hype in the company, have a lot of influence, official or otherwise, uh, and you end up with some combustible figures and elements. It had to happen at some point. And I wonder if Nash, lovable character that he is, has been itching for this sort of thing for a while. I don't think he particularly is keen on the fact that Piper has his own creative control card. And after that abomination of a match, which is, if you're going to have any reason for snapping at somebody afterwards, that is at least a fair one, then this was the excuse he needed. It's, uh, yeah, the idea of a actual fistfight between Nash and Piper. Uh, let's just say I hope Piper brought a lot of bubblegum with him. Yeah. Yeah, but as we say... You know what I mean. It sounds like... Good luck. It, it sounds like uh, Bischoff sat down with both of them. I don't know whether it was individually or together later in the week. Um, and yeah, from the sound of things, no real knock-on effect. Certainly for the pay-per-view, that match went, went ahead as planned or later in the month. I suspect they might just move the two of them apart. I mean, Piper's now... You know, I'm jumping ahead of ourselves a bit. Piper's now obviously got his got a new program of work going forward, so you know the he won't be teamed with Flair anymore against the Outsiders. So they can probably just keep them apart. Um, but yeah, it is just it is one of those things when you've got a lot of guys when you're paying guys a a lot of money to keep them happy to keep them inside WCW because everything else is going quite well. Um, it is a knock on effect. Anyway. On to the pay-per-view. The Great American Bash. Rory kicks off with the results. I shall. Ultimate Dragon defeated Psychosis. Harlem Heat defeated the Steiner Brothers by disqualification. Conan defeated Hugh Morris. Glacier defeated Roth. Akira Hukuto defeated Medusa in a title versus career match for the WCW Women's Championship. Chris Benoit defeated Meng in a return death match. Kevin Green beat Steve McMichael. The Outsiders defeated Ric Flair and Roddy Piper in a tag team match for the WCW World Tag Team Championship. And in our main event, Randy Savage beat Diamond Dallas Page in a false count anywhere match. Tom, what do you think of this show? So, this was the, um, having not, you know, done, done, done one of these wrestling podcasts for a while, this is the first WCW event that I've watched um, this year. So, well, actually, no, I think I watched one earlier this year, but, but my point being, I was able to watch this and step back in and enjoy this show very easily. Um, it, I, I like the, the style of presentation that, they, that they're doing at this time uh, in WCW because the, you can turn on and watch it and you can follow the storylines quite easily enough. And the, the, stuff, the, the points we were talking about, about backstage politics and who has creative control, etc., the way that that spills out into the ring is making some very interesting TV viewing because you can almost, you've got the story that's being presented to you as one thing, but then you've got the, the people behind that story as another. So you can almost look behind the curtain and analyse it from a different angle. It's certainly in the main event matches, not so much when it goes further down the card. Um, but we had, some, we had some good matches. We had some not so good matches. We had one of the worst matches I think I've ever seen. Um, but we had a, a, very, a really good match on there as well. So it, it offered pretty much everything I would expect on a... On a uh, or I would want for on a pay-per-view. Um, in terms of overall quality, we can talk, talk about that later. But I liked it. It was a fun show, and I enjoyed watching it. 
Roy? Other than the event that we'll not speak of back in January, I think it's been a very good year for pay-per-view in general for WCW. That run for me, I'm afraid to say, ended here slightly, mainly because this was the most inconsistent pay-per-view I think I've watched since I joined this project. There was a run of about 40, 45 minutes after the first match where if I didn't have my duties, I would have, I would have considered actually turning off. Some of that stuff should, just should not be shown on a on a pay-per-view by a reputable organisation who have designs on being number one at the end of time. However, there was still a lot of good on this show. That's what inconsistent means after all. But I found it really hard to stay focused because I was finding problems where there shouldn't really have been problems. There were high points, and we'll get to those, but I came away from this one disappointed, especially as not only have the run of pay-per-views been good, since they brought it back in 95, the Great American Bashes have been good too. So I was let down. I thought there were six good matches on this card. Um, and yet, yeah, I'm a bit up and down on this show as well. Um, the, the lows at times were very low. Um, but by and large, the second half of this show, I think, stands up against anything WCW put on um, in terms of you know, not necessarily raw in-ring quality, but in terms of drama and interest and intrigue and, and crowd response. Um, and yeah, there were some good matches, undeniably very good matches on this card. Um, the main event in particular, and the opening match. Um, but equally, there is the worst match of the year contender. Um, I mean, well, contender might be putting it generously. Um, but anyway... Yeah, I thought this was I thought this was a good show. Mixed bag, up and down. I watched it in two halves, which 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 probably lends credence to, to my viewpoint that it is a kind of up and down show. But I don't know that there's been a, a more interesting second half to a WCW pay per view for a while. There's been shows with better quality of matches, but I don't know that we've seen quite the level of drama um, that that has come from this. But anyway, let's get to it, shall we? So. We start off with Moline, Illinois for the Great American Bash with Tony, Bobby and Dustin, Dusty on the call. Sorry, don't get that wrong. Uh, Psychosis opens up with Tony Ono against the Ultimate Dragon in a respect match. Mike Tanay says, it's all about one word, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Well, that's seven letters, but okay. They've done a really good job with the set for once, a few giant USA flags behind the horizontal video wall. Dragon hits an arm dragon, psychosis falls to the outside. The fans are already up for tonight. A lot of early stalling in this. It appears that psychosis spits at dragon. Dragon tries a leapfrog and psychosis just punches him in the abdomen. The crowd are very loud. Even a standing elbow drop from Dragon gets a sizable reaction. Dragon does his top rope handstand, kicks Psychosis back and then unloads on him. I'll stop mentioning it, but boy, this crowd is hot. Dragon gets Psychosis into an airplane spin then drops down to his knees. Dragon blocks a shot on the apron then drops Psychosis' neck over the top rope and sends him higher, flying to the outside. Ono gets some kicks in at ringside. Dragon gets straight through the ropes and Psychosis drops the guillotine leg drop, sending them both to the floor. Psychosis goes for a magic star cradle for a two. Ono gets some more shots in on Dragon, who sets to hit him with a suplex, but Psychosis flies to the outside to break it up. We get a head scissors into a double rollover spot that sends Psychosis to the floor. Dragon hits an acai moonsault to the floor. Dragon hits a brain buster, and Psychosis just about kicks out. Dragon hits a jumping tombstone pile driver, Psychosis still kicks out. This hits a suicide dive over the top to the outside. 
Dragon rolls up into a Hurricane Rana. Psychosis counters it for a near fall. Psychosis comes off of the top with a Moonsault, but get caught mid-flight by a Moonsault from Dragon. Or a Dropkick from Dragon, even. That would have been really good if it was a Moonsault with a return. Dragon hits a Frankensteiner. Ono gets on the apron. Psychosis hits a Dropkick off of the Distraction. Of course, it wouldn't be WCW without a stupid finish. Dragon counters an Irish whip. Ono sees this coming, yet still blindly turns and kicks the guy running into the ropes. But of course, Dragon has countered it. So Dragon puts in a sleeper on Psychosis, and a Dragon sleeper on Psychosis, and Psychosis taps out. Tom? I thought this was a good opener. Um, It, in many ways, summarises my thoughts on the overall pay-per-view. It had some very good bits. It had some not so good bits. The timing was a little bit off in places. The crowd were, as you mentioned, incredibly into it. Uh, and overall, I, I, I enjoyed the match. I didn't like the I didn't like the finish. It was quite ridiculous. I actually went back and watched it to see if I sort of uh, I, I, I I couldn't quite believe how how bad the delivery of that kick from Ono was. Um, he was staring him right in the face when he did it, and had a good what, two seconds to, to realize who who he was looking at. But I, I, I guess it's, you know, you've just got to dispend belief. Um, and otherwise, they, they both worked well in the match. Uh, as I said, the time was off in a few places, but there were some good spots. Uh, and the crowd, my God, it, 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 I, I couldn't believe it. I, I'm not quite sure why the crowd was so riled up and, and into this one. Um, I guess the anticipation of the event uh, is to be, that's the, that's the reason for it. And in a way, I guess, and we'll go on to talk about it, but the way that the crowd energy wasn't sustained may tell you uh, or, or give a good example of uh, where they went wrong with the show. They weren't able to, to maintain it and keep that pace and to keep people interested. Or you could just say that it was that fever pitch excitement when the bell rang um, and when the match was over, they never got back, back to it. I don't know, but this was, this was a good match. I, I, I liked um, uh, Dragon. I, I, I like the way he works. His, his, his kicks were impressive. Um, and Psychosis is good in the air, but he's a bit wild. Um, it was a good match. It was a good starter. Yeah, you can... You can keep saying that, you know, the, the, the cruiserweights are getting great reactions because they're in the opening spot. But after a while, I think you you kind of come to the conclusion that the cruiserweights are getting great reaction because the fans really want to see them. Mm. Um, there is always that as well. Yeah, I mean, that finish, just to, you know, it's easier explaining it than probably rereading through my notes. Um, Psychosis attempts to... You know, you've got Ono what stood on the apron. Psychosis goes to Irish Whip Dragon into into Ono with the idea that Ono's going to do a kind of spinning back kick to, to channel Eric Bischoff. Catch Dragon in the head. That's going to be the, the big move. Obviously, the, the way they set it up is that Dragon's going to counter the Irish Whip and send Psychosis in Ono's direction with the idea that Ono's not meant to see this. He's going to blindly kick the guy and it's going to turn out to be he's kicked the wrong guy. Basically, uh, you know, a reprisal of the, the Jeff Jarrett, Shawn Michaels, Rhodey spot from a couple of years ago. Problem being, of course, is that they didn't quite time it correctly and Ono was watching as Dragon countered the Irish whip um, and probably got a good eye on the psychosis coming towards him and then started the spin kick. Um, not the best. Roy, what do you think? Uh, WCW finishes, though. You've got to love them. This match was great. It was probably my absolute pick of the night. Albeit not necessarily for the reasons I would have expected going in. Because as, as you've alluded to there, guys, they put the, the, the cruiserweights out there for 15 minutes at the start of the pay-per-view, fly around the ring, get the crowd into it, all really exciting stuff. That's been the trope for pretty much a year now, and it's tried and tested, and it works. Fantastic. The thing that made this match 
stand above a lot of the rest was that these were the cruiserweight guys, but they were working a standard North American heel-face style. And I think that might explain why the crowd was so hot. You had Psychosis there. He didn't just go out there and bust out 720 super splashes right from the start. No, he was there closing his fist and punching Psychosis in the face. He was laughing in front of him. He was holding the ropes for nearly five. And as such, they actually built sympathy on Ultimate Dragon. He was getting cheers for doing arm drags, for goodness sake. And when that happens, you know that the crowd, they're into you. They're not just into the moves, they're into you and your character. And I thought that was great. And so when we got to the final five minutes and they did break out the big guns, uh, the Asai Moonsault, the Tombstone that never wins, and that admittedly superb uh, suicide dive by psychosis over the ring post, I was almost a little bit let down. I thought, oh, I could have gone for another three or four minutes of this character stuff before you hit the big stuff. But they, they earned the right to go out there and do it. So, yeah, I love this. Obviously, the feats of athleticism were as tremendous as ever, but they gave us something really extra as well. I think that's why the crowd was so behind them. And uh, finish aside, I thought this was absolutely great. Yeah, suicide dies below, under the top rope, pretty good. Suicide dies over the top rope, very good. Suicide dies over the top rope, diagonally over the turnbuckle <laughs> to the outside, really, really good. Mm. I mean, yeah, I, I thought this match was excellent. I mean, you know, I, I could even forgive the finish. Like, you take two guys, you know, this has always kind of been the thing with, with, with some of these matches, you know, it's guys who are used to working in front of you know, generally Mexican fans, but it depends on who we're talking about, who are much more used to just this relentless pace. Um, and it's always been like, you know, when the crowd stops reacting to this stuff, you're doing something wrong. And this was this was the cruisers getting it just the right side of the line in front of a hot crowd with the right amount of work and the right amount of storytelling. And then you combine that with the quality of the work, it wasn't perfect but it wasn't far off and I've you know with this kind of style of wrestling I've you know I've never really thought oh they fucked something up that ruins the match it's like well that's just the style right depending on how the how much they fuck up or what they fuck up I don't think it matters like sometimes it's good to have those mistakes in there because it shows you how much they're trying what they're trying to execute um but there was some excellent individual spots in this match it was an excellent match on the whole, um, and not for the first time this year, Dragon's been involved in, I, I wouldn't call it a match of the year candidate, but not far off. Um, and yeah, when they can when they can get these guys this side of the line, when they can get these guys wrestling a match that a US audience can understand, it works. Uh, and Dragon's one of the best in the company. Psychosis isn't far off either. Um, you know, we, we, I keep saying, well, I'm back the clock two years, but it's true. This would have been... Jim Duggan and bloody Kamala. Um, I mean, you know, good luck to Jim Duggan doing a suicide dive over the top to the outside, but I'd like to see him try. Um, but yeah. Well, Miles screaming ho at the top of his voice. Well, obviously. Obviously, we tell that to given. Um, but yeah, very, very good match. Not for the first time. And not for the first time, you're like, well, shit, maybe we should push this match up the card next time. But WCW still don't get that... Uh, so that seems to get that idea. I feel like, you know, Dragon's so good and Psychosis isn't far behind that these guys could be put in a position not just to be warm-up opening match. They could be put in a position to draw. And it's like, you know, they've got enough talent. They could put other guys in the spot. Anyway, there we are. Anyway, 
Chris Benoit is backstage doing a live Q&A on WCWWrestling.com. We move on next to Harlem Heat, Booker T and Steve Ray with Sister Sherry, or Sherry, whatever she's called these days, versus the Steiner Brothers, Rick and Scott. Scott hits Steve with a big elbow. Steve hits back in the corner with a big forearm. Scott ducks a big boot and hits a lovely side suplex. Harlem Heat regroup and the Steiners fend off, feed off of the crowd. Rick hits a big scoop slam on Stevie Ray. The Heat drops to the floor to regroup again. We get a test of strength between Scott and Booker. Booker escapes and hits uh, escapes out of it into a full Nelson. Scott hits a double underhook powerbomb. He comes off of the second row but sort of bails out and the whole thing looks a bit ugly as he falls into a boot that Booker was sticking up. Booker hits a Harlem sidekick and sends both to the floor. See Ray power slams Rick on the outside. Rick slams Booker in the ring and the crowd are all over the dog bark orchestrated by Scott. Scott hits a big belly to belly then hit whips out a Frankensteiner, outruns Vincent, of course he does, who drops the elbow onto Booker T, forcing a DQ and a Harlem Heat win. So in a bit of backstory, this was basically number one contender match, and the essential idea was that Vincent forced the DQ so that the Steiners couldn't face the Outsiders. So Vincent kind of, after the match, DQ, Harlem Heat won. Vincent stood on the outside, and I'm like, at some point, they're going to work out they're going to beat Vincent up. It took them a while, but they got there in the end. They just beat the piss out of him with a double clothesline and a bulldog off of Scott's shoulders. Rory, what do you think? It might seem heretical to say this, but in this day and age, in the summer of 1997, I don't really get the Steiners. I'm, I'm kind of done with them, to be honest. They're at their best in two or three minute squashes where they can toss people around. They've never really been in a position where they've been able to hold a match unless they're in there with vastly superior workers and now with a lot more wear and tear on their bodies or in the case of Scott a lot more on his body it, 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 it's getting worse and worse I'm afraid Booker had to carry pretty much the entire match here and I don't think he's ready for that yet I groaned when after about a minute in the ring he goes to a full Nelson spot and then a few minutes later he's going for a pinfall off a snap there and when your best worker in the match isn't really feeling it then you are going to struggle. It meandered along. It wasn't terrible. And for all my criticisms of the Steiners, see them hitting big suplexes on people. Well, that's their game. And if you're in there for that, then then okay, fair enough. I think that's probably why their match on Nitro a couple of weeks later was superior to this because it did play to the strengths such that they are of the guys involved. And it went along. There was just about enough to keep you interested until Vincent came along. I think you're being very critical of a team that was in a car crash four months ago, Rory. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, um, Scott Hall, a couple of weeks after, after this, called them the Einsteiners. The fact they haven't actually reported being run off the road by Hall and Nash. Maybe he's got a point there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, as everyone knows, in, in America, we, we, we decide disputes like this with tactics, not, not, by, uh, not by legal disputes. Tom, what do you think of this? I thought, yeah, I, I would uh, agree with a lot of what Rory said. I found the same frustrations, but I think I, by the sound of it, I think I probably enjoyed this one a bit more. I, I've got a bit of, a, I think I mentioned this on a WCW podcast I did before, I've got a real soft spot for Booker T and also the Harlem Heat theme music. So any time I get a chance to hear that and nod my head, I can almost forgive and forget what comes between it. However, however that's not to say that this match was terrible because it wasn't. Um, I just would share many of the frustrations that Rory had in terms of the Steiners and their style. It's a very 
it's a very frustrating uh, thing to watch when you think, uh, okay, underneath this, maybe if you took a couple of the people out, there's a very good five-minute match to be had, but put all four of them in there and have it for 10-plus minutes, and it's going to wear thin um, after five. Um, but I thought that, that you know, the, uh, Harlem Heat played the, the, the heel role as well in this. They used the referee uh, very well. Um, they sold the story. They kept the crowd interested. Um, I just the Steiners are so boring. They're so dull, and it's just they never do anything that makes you go, "Oh, oh, right, okay." It's 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 like the Hogan leg drop, but throughout the match, and not as exciting, or not even half as exciting. But Rory, as Rory says, the suplexes are actually quite impressive to watch because you know watching people get thrown around like that as a wrestling fan is hard not to enjoy it, even a slight bit. Um, but you know, as as we will go on to, the, the finish was annoying. Uh, as you said, you could see it coming a mile off, and I just rolled my eyes when it finished. Um, but overall, it was a, the match was okay. The Steiners are like the Hogan leg drop. <laughs> <laughs> very, very specific analogy that. Um, yeah, I I was quite disappointed by this, but I, I think on the on the subject of the Steiners, I just you know I think they're really, really good, but the Steiners. Are really really good when you present them well. I think when you don't, it kind of all falls apart. Um, the Steiners really need to be this decade's road warriors, I think. Um, not that it's easy in WCW in 1997 to be able to present a tag team like that because you you kind of need credible opponents on a on an almost weekly basis. Um, but the Steiners as a a babyface act trying to work heels and trying to work back and forth matches are going to be dull because it doesn't really play to their strengths. The Steiners are a team that should be kicking ass and they probably should be heels. Like, you know, this is a, this is a weird match. I kind of feel like if you, if you turn both of these teams and have the heat, you, you probably get rid of Sherry at that point, but I think, I think they can, the heat can handle themselves on the mic. Have, have the heat as the baby faces and the Steiners as these ass-kicking heels, then the Steiners can can dominate matches physically. Then it makes sense. At the moment, it just doesn't. At the moment, it's just a bit dull. The Steiners are trying to sell. It doesn't really make any sense. Um, the, Heat, uh, the Heat are a team that I think people quite like. Um, and it doesn't help. Uh, Rory feeding on that and feeding on the finish. You mean our boy Virgil Vincent, Mike Jones, whatever, turning up. I don't really want to give give it any more credit by even talking about that, really. Uh, I suppose they they just one day in the dressing room, maybe Kevin, Kevin Nash himself, now that he has some sort of power, just saw Virgil sitting around there, I don't know, trimming his toenails or something. Thought, yeah, you're just, just clapping up the place. Go out there and get involved in a match at the, at the pay-per-view. Um, they didn't really explain why he was there. I know we tried to fill in the story saying it just because they didn't want the Steiners to win, but I actually think we're giving them a bit too much credit there. It's a WCW finish, Bob. Well, it's a WCW finish that was a finish of convenience. Like, it, 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 fit, it fit the, the fuck-finish criteria, but it also fit the need of the story. And essentially, they wanted to use this as a, a set piece on Nitro a few weeks later. You know... It, it, it fit both purposes, I think. One more thing, just, just one more thing about this. One thing I do not like is that they're dragging out the whole number one contender tag team championship match again into next month, by the sound of it. Uh, the Steiners, Steiners eventually going to win on Nitro a couple of weeks later after this. 
Now, that's only a win that gives them another number one contenders match against Chono and Muta. I know you can put this down to the outsiders in kayfabe terms playing games, which is fine. Yet, I don't think they can go to this well too often without just out and out pissing people off. Yeah, titles in wrestling aren't there to be defended once every six months. I think that's that's the, the big problem. But they they don't want to... It is the issue, and it is the issue we're seeing a lot right now, is that they just don't want to beat anybody cleanly, unless it's Hogan, and then we can kind of fob it off. Tom, thoughts on the finish? No, as, as I said, I just found I just found it very frustrating, and it, it leads into the um, the point that I made at the start of the podcast about just NWO mania running over the, everything that happens in WCW. And as you say, you, you get the feeling that the idea is. Um, Let's do everything we can we can to avoid it being a clean finish. And if if they were creative with it, you'd almost go, actually, it makes sense because because they're they're clever and they're devious. But it was just so lazy. It was an elbow drop, and it's just like, oh fucking hell! I I I don't know. I I, I found it really frustrating, and I I, I agree with with Rory. It 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 just. You question in this time, can they get away with this and for much longer? Because it's almost like, well, they're not, they're not going to beat the tag champions, so let's just we're not going to beat them. So let's just fight between ourselves to find out who who gets beaten by them next, which is not a way to build a division uh, and just frustration. I think you've struck on WCW's plan there. Anyway, let's move on. Up next, Conan versus Hugh Morris. Here we go. Conan vaults over the onrushing Morris who drop kicks him. Conan slams him into the ring steps. He takes him down the lariat and then works a chin lock. Morris returns the fire by sending Conan into the ring steps himself. The previously hot crowd are now silent. Morris responds to this by locking in an armbar. Seriously, Prince OK's career started and finished in the time this armbar has been in place. Conan escapes, then locks in his own rest hold. A fan chants, boring, as very possible that fan was me. Actually stops taking notes at this point. Morris shakes from moonsault, he's going to miss. Oh, actually Conan jumps up and knocks him off. Morris seems to have knocked himself out off the moonsault, or the throw anyway. Conan finishes it with a leg submission, because of course that makes sense. Um, and yes, the only thing I'll underscore this match before we review it is that apparently Conan got injured during it. There is that. Um, Tom. Joe, I thought this match was really good. Of course I fucking didn't. <laughs> this was dreadful. This was, uh, I mean, good Lord, it went over 10 minutes. Over 10 Did minutes. It? Yes. And I just could not believe that these two men have... I, I couldn't believe they'd done a moment's exercise before the match, especially Hugh Morris, who looked like he'd run down the shop and got tired on the way um, to buy his next meal. Uh, I just... Uh, I, 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 could, I didn't understand who was the heel, who was the baby face. I, there was no... In, the crowd didn't care. Neither of the blokes in the ring cared. It went on for far too long. There were a couple of, you know, it's not the worst match I've ever seen because there were a couple of spots that I thought were actually quite good. Um, it was mainly clotheslines and that, but there was a decent spin heel kick in there. Uh, there was a deadlift German at the end, which was nice. So I like those. Um, but in a 10-plus minute match, those are the only two things that I would call out as the positives. And I genuinely, genuinely thought that Hugh Morris had died at the end of it. Uh, and I'll be honest, in my notes, I'd written that I was thankful for that. Um, but gladly he hadn't. Uh, he, he hit, I think he just passed out from exhaustion. So I will say no more on the subject. Rory. Thanks. Okay. We're not exactly coming into this match with momentum at the best 
at the best of times. This is a, these are a C-grade tag team who nobody cared about. They split up a couple of weeks ago. Nobody cared about that. And they've been hitting each other in revenge with broomsticks. So we're not exactly cooking on all cylinders even before the bell rings. And boy, did they live down to those expectations. The touchstone for poorly wrestled matches in this project does seem to be DDP versus the Booty Man from last year. With good reason. I think that has been usurped here in the ten and a half minutes of complete and utter dross we were served up. They just, they had no plan. They had no idea what to do. They had no idea what they wanted to do. And worst of all, they had no idea, if I want to make that point clear. They just couldn't do anything. There was about a minute, a minute in where there was, Cohen was just making up some sort of lame, gentle-looking arm submission. In fact, it looked like he was probably just checking for, uh, checking for Hugh Morris's pulse, which would be understandable. But Morris was blown up right from the start. They couldn't get anything going. All their punches and clotheslines and kicks showed atmospheres worth of air. The big moonsault spot, they probably replanned about two or three times before they came up with the worst idea possible, which was Conan lightly tapping the rope and Hugh Morris pretending that his head hit the turnbuckle and was nowhere near it. He wins with what was supposed to be the tequila sunrise, which is just basically holding his ankle in his hand. And why the hell am I still talking about this fucking match? Yeah, um... You know, I don't know how much credence to say that, you know, what this match would have been like had Conan not got hurt early. I'm inclined to think not that much different, but they had to kind of cut away from all this because they had a, a double stretcher job planned for later in the show. And I think Conan, I think both guys needed help to the back after the match. Um, I think Morris was probably just exhausted whether Conan, how seriously Conan was hurt, I don't know. Um, but yeah. I, I, I'll be impressed if something beats this in the worst match of the year stakes in, in six months' time. You're not going to give me doing the ten worst matches list again, are you, Bob? Oh, I am. That was a rhetorical question. We'll, 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 make it, we'll make it 20 this year just to give you a bit of a challenge. Um, I love you. But, yeah, like, genuinely terrible. Like, I, I, I don't know what they were trying. Like, I mean, the crowd were really hot, like, 25 minutes beforehand. And they just killed them dead. Did you um, Did you guys notice there was there was a there was a piece of commentary towards the end? I can't remember who said it, but they were trying to explain when they were both really really out of breath. I think I think it was Dusty said this thing has gone on so long. I'm not surprised. And it's just like when I heard him say that, I was like, yes, yeah, far too long. And actually, they don't deserve to be as hard as they are. But that just spoke words to me. Um, oh. Lots of things did. This was just it's just so bad. Like that long bit in the middle where they're just exchanging rest holes and the crowd are doing nothing and yeah it doesn't help I think Rory you've thrown this quite well we've got two two guys that were a tag team no one cared about then they split them up but I, yeah, I think they're both still heels um, and Conan continues his run of having matches as good as his opponent and his opponent was terrible and he was terrible um, and yes let's not spend a second longer on it Mean Gene Oakland shields the hotline, says a man may turn up at Nitro tomorrow who, quote, may be having problems with his current organisation. Fucking hell. Sure, Michael's though. You're, you're wondering what, what that, uh, what that insinuation was all about. Public Enemy come out, they put a table at the top of the entrance ramp, they actually sit on it with Oakland, not the best promo, but they might have decided to kill some time while they, dealt with uh, Conan and uh, Morris. They eventually get a reaction from the crowd. Of course, they're not wrestling on this card. 
Who are next? The Wrath with Mortis and James Vandenberg versus Glacier. Mortis is handcuffed to the ring post. Wrath starts with some strikes in the corner. Glacier escapes and hits a series of quick chops. Glacier hits a soft psychic and Wrath tamely falls to the floor. He gets a better kick in on the floor, then whips him into the steps. All the credit in the world to Mike Tanay for attempting to give Cruiserweight levels a backstory to this nonsense. Glacier loses ground after Mortis grabs a leg. Glacier ends up in a powerbomb position, then just drops him over the top rope. Nick Patrick is refereeing for what that's worth. Nothing of note, he's just a babyface these days. <coughs> Glacier ducks a couple, then misses a crossbody. Wrath comes off the top and takes Glacier down. Glacier gets a choke in from the mat. Wrath tries to drop an elbow from the top but misses. Wrath, hellbent on torturing the audience as well as Glacier, doesn't want to go for the cover. Glacier gets up, stumbles into Patrick who ends up knocking Wrath from the top. Glacier hits a big superplex, he levels Mortis, then Wrath hits a belly to back. Patrick fights off Vandenberg getting the key. Glacier hits Wrath with a chain and wins the match. Glacier gets back into a two-on-one corner situation, particularly gets beaten up. He has no friends, so the ref has to run them off. Rory? Well, the real star of this match, as you alluded to there, Bob, was definitely Mike Tenay. I mean, the, the king of wrestling knowledge could tell you anything about anybody's backstory anywhere in the world. The man they bring into every single move list, he's got it. And now here he is telling us that James Vandenberg discovered Mortis when he was pit-fighting in Europe. <laughs> Oh, and uh, Roth just happened to be there as well. <laughs> nice try, Mike, nice try. This match was blah. I say it was all the three flare steamboat matches compared to what we'd seen before. It was basic. It was competently handled. I mean, all of these characters are all very, very stupid. Mortis just looks like the Inquisitor from Red Dwarf. Roth is Adam Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Glacier is loved by Dell and fewer other people each week. And there's not much to say about it. Harmless, schlocky fun, although I'm not sure that that's what WCW should really be about. Uh, I've got Tom. I'll, I'll try and make some sense of it in a sec. Yeah, I thought, again, I think I thought slightly more of it, but not much. I, I um, again, this is quite, this was quite new to me, this, uh, these guys, and I've seen, I've seen and heard of them before, but seeing them work, it, it felt like, uh, it felt like if you were playing Mortal Kombat, and the characters had already had about ten fights beforehand, and they, 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 they were still good, but they, 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 things weren't quite working as slick and as quick as they perhaps could be. Is, um, is there a rest hold function in Mortal Kombat? <laughs> Can you just take the other guy to the floor and just work his arm for a couple of minutes? Uh, uh, no, but that's not to say that you know the WCW team here weren't, weren't suggesting that um, uh, by dressing their char- their characters up to look like they exactly they came dropped out of the game. Um, and and let, well, let's be honest here. Th- th- there's worse matches, i.e., the one that came before it. However, in order to save the pay per view and really bring it around, this match needed to be better than it was, and I felt sorry for the guys in it, because they actually both put quite a shift in, I thought. They, it was, as Rory said, it was very competent, there were some decent spots in there, uh, there's a nice cannonball, there's a good, a good superplex in there, uh, powerbomb release, uh, things, things like this, like, you know, there was some decent stuff in there, again, the finish was, I didn't like the finish, I, I had to think about, I had to go back and think about it, I think probably because I wasn't interested in the match, but it didn't make sense to me the first time I watched it, um, with the with the with the key coming from the ref and 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 it took it from his pocket etc and all that. Um, 
but it, it was okay. I just didn't like the finish, which seems to be a common thing with WCW. Yeah, Rory, I just feel like we're, we're, we've been here before with this, but if you're going to have guys doing Mortal Kombat, then they should be working normal matches, should they? Exactly. I think the whole trying to make sense of the whole Glacier Mortis Rod Vandenberg thing is that they are from a different universe to the seriously stay with me on this one a different universe from your standard WCW wrestler and they should be treated as such really and you can let the audience then spend their own disbelief and come under the auspice that they're watching something slightly different each time having them out there doing rest holes and even things like adhering to three counts it doesn't quite work and a box on the referee like Nick Patrick being in there. You're taking, I think it was a, Chris Savisa in the torch, but I put it best this month when he said that this was Kiddies Masters of the Universe stuff. That might, might still have its place, but if you're going to do that, then just go the whole hog with it. Don't try and shoehorn them into the standard WCW, WCW world. It, 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 it's too much of an awkward juxtaposition for me, and it comes across just looking as hokey when there could could be a story to tell here. Yeah, I just I said it before. Have them working two minute long matches, predominantly kick and strike based. Have the odd wrestling move in it, and have the matches then by knockout. Um, if you're going to do Mortal Kombat, that's the only way of doing it. And then I think. And I think, you know, you kind of treat it as a universe within a universe, which they kind of are now anyway. It's like Glacier apparently has no other friends, because in part because no other wrestlers, Bayface Files occupy the space in the WCW space-time continuum that he does. So that makes some kind of sense. But just having the guard there working eight-minute matches, normal wrestling matches, just is pointless. Um, you know, working heel baby face like I think if this was Mortal Kombat stuff and it was like okay we're going to be larger than life we're going to focus on guys that are at least capable martial arts wise with kicks and with punches and we'll, we'll exaggerate certain things you know bring back the mood lighting it might have had a chance but these guys just trying to be wrestlers just what's the point there isn't one I don't think um, I don't think anyone cares unless it's Dell who's mostly not on this month um, so we can we can be back to normality on that front. Um, but yeah, just move on. Up next, it's Akira Hokuto with Sanyono versus Medusa for the WCW Women's title. If Medusa loses, she has to quit. Very messy start. Typically, Hokuto throws Medusa across the ring by her hair, then violently chokes her in the corner. Hokuto hits a pile driver. Medusa rallies and the crowd are back. A pair of drop kicks, Medusa hits a snapmare takeover, then jumps on her shoulders. Hokuto starts working a series of holds, cutting off Medusa's airways, then starts biting the toe, of all things. Medusa comes off to the top with a weak axe handle. She sells her knee, so Hokuto drops her on that knee. Hokuto goes for a skirtboard stretch. Medusa then hits a headscissors, taking Hokuto off of the top. She hits a powerbomb for a big pop and a near fall. We get a leg lock submission. Medusa eventually reaches the ropes. Medusa hits a German suplex. Ono breaks up the pin by pulling on Medusa's bad leg. Hokuto comes off with the top. Medusa gets her legs up but hurts her knee again. She levels her with a clothesline and that's the top. Whatever that means. Medusa's knee gives out. Hokuto hits a brain buster and wins the match cleanly. Medusa is in tears and they give this the full send-off after the match. Oakland, Oakland goes into interview, but the doctors uh, are carrying her off. 
Uh, Oakland comes off as a massive prick during all of this, <laughs> reminding Medusa that her career is over. So much so that you hear multiple people chanting, leave her alone at the normal... <laughs> <laughs> um, Tom, I, I, I... Easily the best women's match WCW have ever put on. That is a very low bar. I'm struggling to recall a better women's match we've seen since this show started. Again, not the highest bar, but we've seen some decent stuff from Medusa um, previously. Um, but I thought this was very, very good. I thought Medusa sold her, played her role ex- excellently. Um, and we talk about matches that are set up for screwy finishes. This one looked like for all the world like it might be. And for once, they, they paid off a significant ending. Yeah, totally agree. I really enjoyed this match. I um, had very little expectations going into it, um, having not seen Hokuto before, but I've seen Medusa, uh, and she is clearly talented, and the two of them have clearly worked together before as well, and they did allude to that in the commentary. Um, but I found the whole... This is what I wanted for this match to be in order to, to get the pay-per-view back on track, and it worked. It, it, it was well-booked. The two of them really worked their socks off. Um, Medusa sold the leg in- injury very well, uh, there was some, there was some really nice spots in there. Like there, was, there was a quick snap superplex from the top rope that Hokuto did, and that was that was really nice to see. You don't see that too often, actually. Even, even I can't think of another time that I've seen it really. So it's very unusual. Um, and the finish was fine. Uh, I mean, the, I cannot, exa- I cannot exaggerate by saying how funny I thought it was when Mean Gene came, what he said to Medusa afterwards. It was so funny because she was, she was be, being carried back. Like she could barely stand up. So. Mijin was coming in, and, and I figured he might say, "Oh, we're so sorry. We're 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 all the fans here are with me when we say you put in such a good shift." Wait, wait a minute, okay, Dusty. Before you talk, yeah. Gene Oakland is down there. Wow. The end of a career. Gene, go ahead. Are you there? Yeah, Tony. Uh, uh, Chuck, what, what's, the, what's the status of this left knee? You know, about eight years ago, Whitney Richter blew that same knee out, and I've got a feeling the same thing happened here tonight. Can I get an answer? You know, maybe that shouldn't even be a consideration due to the fact that her career right now is history. It's over. It's close for this young lady. Medusa. Medusa, do you realize what's happened here tonight? This is something you put your career on the line. Do you have any idea as to the gravity of that? Apparently, I'm not going to get an answer from her, Tony. Well, I can't say I blame her, really. Leave her alone. Listen to this chant from these people here at ringside tonight. This young lady is hurt. She's hurt badly. She's being assisted. Tony, let's get back to you. Gene, thanks a lot. Thanks for your efforts. What he said was, do you realize what's happened? Do you, your career is over. Do you actually realise what's happened? <laughs> like, like she's in some sort of daze and she doesn't actually realise the impact of what's happened. And Mean Jean's there to tell her that, to make her feel even worse. Bearing in mind, she was literally in floods of tears um, in the ring. It was awful, that, 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 but it was so funny. And then um, Heenan was really funny as well, saying that, you know, clearly saying he didn't give a, didn't give a crap as to what had happened. And um, I think it was Tanae said to Heenan, you're a low life, and <laughs> he even said, "Don't talk that way to Dusty," <laughs> which which really made me laugh as well. But no, the, the match was really good, and I was really impressed. I, I I really I actually would have liked to have seen another another one of these uh, matches between these two, um, or even have it go on for another few more minutes. It was, I was very impressed. Yeah, for once, I think Oakland. Well, not for once, but Oakland, I think was 
working kind of under the impression I better get this point across because people haven't realised it. Um, and but they had, and Oakland didn't pick up on that. And so Roy just came up like a complete prick. I particularly liked that he actually drew attention to the crowd shouts afterwards. He seemed legitimately taken aback that the car might be pissed off at him sticking a microphone in Medusa's face like that. Leave her alone. Yes, that's exactly what they're chanting, Gina, with good bloody reason. <sighs> Once an oiler used car salesman, always an oiler used car salesman. Anyway, the match was great. I thought it was my second favourite match of the night, actually. The storyline which going into it and you mentioned it last month Bob is full of holes there's no real women's division to be excluded for the rest of your career from if we're being honest <laughs> which is which is a problem but they worked their way past that and they told a great great story uh, the injured knee thing it's one of the oldest tropes in wrestling but it works it works absolutely if you can have somebody who can sell it well which Medusa did she didn't just limp around every move she tried to do was clearly causing her pain and when you've got somebody who is clearly a ringmaster, like Hukata, I've loved everything I've seen of her. I want to, I want to see more if we can. I hope WCW keep her around, but it doesn't look as though that's going to happen. Too expensive to fly her in, sadly. But these two meshed really well. Easily the best Medusa match, or Alondra Blaze match even, I've ever seen. A simple story told really well. Medusa looked like she was going to battle through, but she slipped on the old baby face banana skin. And I have no complaints about this one whatsoever. A simple story, really well told. Sometimes that is all you need. Was it Lee Marshall on commentary who... Wrecked? Lee Marshall on commentary, yeah, who was trying to do the Mike Tanay thing by shoehorning as many facts in, in as he could. I, I barely recognise it was Lee Marshall, actually, because we're normally used to hearing him over a suspiciously clear phone line from whatever Nitro is going to be next week. <laughs> fuck those fucking on the road things are so bad it, it peaked that one week where Marshall generally ca- cracked up tonight and then it's fallen away since yeah the reason I bring up Marshall was that um, when Medusa went on over on her knee uh, Marshall basically said oh yeah that's the same knee that, knee that Wendy Richter injured about 10 years ago um, and admittedly Dave Meltzer said I'm, I'm not particularly sure that's true not that you said oh, I couldn't remember more than anything else um, I thought this was excellent like you know from a storytelling standpoint the in-ring action was good I don't think it was any better than that it was good but it's all it needed to be but from a storytelling standpoint it worked um, you know and it's one of those things where if you'd have had this same match with the same stipulation but it build it a lot better it probably would have meant a lot more um, and I think that's why Oakland went in and gave it both barrels afterwards just to try and ram home a point that didn't need to be rammed home. But Deuce had done such a good job during the match and the, the crowd were clear at least aware of the stipulation um, that when it all came off and when it all finished, they were, you know, they bought into it. Um, and Oakland comes in, he's just like, you know, you know your career's over now, right? It's like, geez, like, you know, the, Oakland's the... Oakland's the the all-American babyface, right? Oakland's not going to piss anybody off. He's going to be harmless. And yet he managed to get leave her alone chance from the crowd, which is fantastic. <laughs> also a remarkable part of the match. I um, genuinely thought, just to say, I genuinely thought that Gene might be turning heel at that point. I thought he might be doing it as part of a storyline. So I just thought that that's so out of order. But no. A, he- a heel Oakland would be really good. I'd love to see that. Yeah, likewise. In, in, a, in, a, in a sandbox, admittedly, because Oakland's, oh, you need Oakland as your, your big bay if I you. But I'd love to see it at some point. Um, but yeah, the match was 
excellent, I thought. Uh, very good story told. Very well executed match. Clean finish. A, a, a finish that mattered. A crowd that went with it. We talked about the crowd being flat for the previous two or three matches. They were back. There's, that's no coincidence. Um, and yes, Roy, we're, we're basically now, as Dave Meltzer referenced, this is basically the end of women's wrestling in North America. WWF gave up quite a while ago. WCW, about three months ago, were contemplating two different women's divisions, as stupid as that sounds. Um, but Medusa has been retired because they don't want to keep flying in the Japanese women. And because there's not really any American women other than her, I mean, you could perhaps get something out of her, Luna and Jacqueline, while you scramble for, for extra options, but clearly there's no desire to do that. Um, women's wrestling's dead. It would appear so, and that's a real shame. I just wish that they could try and strike a deal with strike a, a, a real deal with some of the Japanese women, because every time they've been brought in, they've absolutely blown me away. My, my first appearance on this project was uh, World War Three, November 1995, women's tag team match there, which I thought was excellent. Every time they've come in, they've shown an array of superb skills which can show what women, what women wrestling really is about. It's me want to go back and watch a lot more of the Josie style. I think it's a real shame if they are out and out retiring the women's title. It would appear so. They didn't even... Medusa had a brief interview the day after this on Nitro. Then nothing was ever mentioned again. And that's a bad sign. And unless the WWF pick up a women's division, but what have they got? Sunny Sable? I suppose Sunny's got her super soaker. No, you better move on here, Bob. Yes, probably better have. This is a family show. It is, well, sort of. Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, that all happened. Very good. Move on next to so Chris Benoit versus Meng with Jimmy Hart in what Tony Chivoli described as a return death match. Not, not the... Uh, not the kind of thing you can normally do twice, Tony, but there we are. Of course, the, uh, the second one kind of invalidates the first. Benoit attacks for the bell for a hot start. He runs off Hart, so it's one versus one. Benoit goes for a cross-face. Meng actually deadlifts his way out and then launches Benoit off of the turnbuckle. They exchange rights, then, Men- then Meng hits a big head kick levelling Benoit. Benoit, quite brilliantly, slides out the ring and takes Meng off his feet with his shoulder while he does it. Meng puts Benoit in the tree of woe. Benoit lays in some chops and Meng gets a knee up. Meng hits a massive splash off of the top. He lands it. He goes for the cover, but Nick Patrick tells him it's a 10-count situation. Benoit getting up just from 10. So Meng hits a great roundhouse kick. Benoit sends Meng into the guardrail. He then hits a German suplex in the ring. Patrick actually starts the 10-count on both of them. Benoit quickly gets up. Meng just about comes around, so Benoit does it again. Meng hits an atomic drop, he then goes for a death grip, Benoit throws himself over the top rope and Meng has to eventually release the hold as Benoit falls to the floor. Meng puts Benoit down mid-ring then just stamps on his head. He comes off of the top with a diving headbutt but Benoit moves. Benoit goes for another crossface, he sweeps the leg then goes back to the crossface. Meng struggles towards the ropes as he groans in pains, this is taking forever. Meng is probably going to pass out. Still taking forever, Meng now further away from the ropes than he was before. That lasts about a minute and then Meng does indeed pass out, although I think they eventually show subsequently that he did just faintly tap out, not the not the Bobby Heenan could quite get his head around the whole situation. After the match, they do a double stretcher job twice in about three months of Benoit. I think they might be overdoing it a bit. 
A quick stretch job for Benoit, I suppose. Benoit did actually tap. He's still motionless for a few minutes after the match. Heen and Dusty are bickering. Maine actually falls off of the gurney as he's being carried to the back, but unfortunately the cameras don't see it. Rory? I think these two might have been victims of their own success a little bit. Last month we had the first death match. The first death match. And it was excellent. It showed that Benoit really can do pretty much anything, and Maine was on. I think that probably might have surprised one or two people in the office, so they cooked up this three-step storyline for Benoit, which seems a little bit half-baked, just as a reason to get to this match again. I can understand why. For me, it didn't quite hit those heights. It was a very different match. It was trying to tell a very different story. A very believable story when you think about it. If you had a move like the Cripple Crossface, then why wouldn't you go for it ten times until you eventually locked your opponent in and kept it on him, kept it on him, kept it on him, until he gave up and couldn't carry on. So it made sense, and because uh, I do like both. I mean, I've never ever enjoyed Main Haku's work more than I do now. He's he's easily providing the best work of his career by many a mile. And my thoughts on Benoit are well documented. So yes, I did enjoy this. I'm glad Benoit won, but they went all out there so much last month. But in my opinion, they couldn't quite live up to it. But still good, and still the right decision. Tom. Having not seen the, the match uh, last month, I didn't even realise there was a first death match, which is a c- complete irony statement. Um, but the match itself here, I found to be... I, I liked it because I liked both the guys involved. I just, I, I actually wish the stipulation wasn't there. I think they could have had a better match if you just took the stipulation out of it. Um, I liked the start. It, it, it was crazy. It was wild with the suicide dive to start. Um, there was it, it, it was a little bit sloppy again, but I liked that in this match. It felt like it was rabid. It felt like it. These guys wanted to really hurt each other, and they had to in order to win. So, and there was some stuff in the match I liked. But when you actually think about the, the, the finish and the, and the stipulation, I guess it does make sense when you think that you know the crossface is, is eventually what's going to end it. Um, so I suppose it it could have been a submission match. It could have been an uh, there's a few stipulations you could have given it with the same outcome. However, I was disappointed because I like both of these guys individually. I think Benoit is is capable of having a better match than Meng is. But that's not to take any credit away from Meng because I really like him. And I think in the right match, he really he really shows what he can do. And I think it sounds like the previous one they had of these is, is, is worth going back to watch for me because it sounds like it's a better showcase of, of his ability and, and how this match can work. Um, I didn't think Meng sold very well in this match. And, and that... that particular finish um, with the crossface, it just, as you as you both said, it went on and on and the noise he was making didn't sound like someone that was in, if you're in that position and it hurts, you're not going to be making the noise that he was making. It was along the lines of uh, 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 rather than the ow, ow, which you know you and I would do. Um, and that went on for a good two, three minutes. I don't think you go ow if you're being in a crossface <laughs> yeah, manoeuvre. I don't think that's the... Gonna... I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go forward. I can if you like, Bob. But I, I've got neighbours, and I don't, I don't want them to be coming around knocking on the door, thinking someone's got me in some sort of crucifix hold. Um, but yeah, the, the the match was good. The, the, the finish was. I, I didn't. It wasn't clear. I, I I didn't think. I couldn't see the tap. But it looked like a very loose tap. I think that's what it was. Cause I think he was just exhausted. And as you said, Bob, when you went back and saw it, it was a very loose tap. So actually, it was quite a good call. Um, so you know, it took seven minutes to stretch them both out after the match. So after a finish that went on probably two minutes too long, the post-match segment went on about five minutes too long, and I felt sorry for these guys because it wasn't their fault. 
I, I don't think. Um, but no, the match was the match was good. I just I'm gonna go I'm gonna go back and check out the match they had before last month. Yeah, um, people who listen to the show regularly probably won't be surprised. I I, I, I very much like this match. Um, Benoit's really Benoit's so good. Um, I don't think the guy's you know capable of getting a move wrong. He's 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 so crisp and so efficient with everything he does. It, everything he does looks great, which really helps. Um, Meng, as I said before, is a guy that you know they keep telling us is is great, even though they rarely show us. Uh, I thought this was a very good match. Um, I, I'm in agreement. I don't think the death match stipulation particularly helped in that it, much like last month, it was kind of a death match in name, but not really in execution, in that it was just more of a, a heavy match with some slightly weird rules. Um, and yeah, I think had they, you know, this is this is the issue with Heenan and Dusty, who, you know, Heenan's been, Heenan's long over his commentary peak now. You know, we still see flashes, but he's not where he was. And Dusty's never been that good. And this is where you need guys that are clued in. Like if if Mike Tanay was doing this call, I suspect the finish would have got over a lot better than it did with with Heenan kind of bumbling around trying to work out what was going on. Um, but yeah, a, a very good match. Both guys are, are really, really clean. I suspect they'll do a third one down the line. Um, but Benoit's just great. And it's like you put him in a situation like this, I think it is always going to work. As I said, I, I don't, you know, I think it was March who did the double stretcher job with Benoit and Sullivan. I don't know that I'd have been that keen to do it again so quickly. Um, but yeah, on the whole, very good match. Oakland once again plugs his hotline. This time, broken, the crowd just shouts, That's Sean Michaels! Which probably gives it away. <laughs> Just a little bit. Up next, it's Steve McMichael with Deborah versus Kevin Green. Green charges the ring and they scrap to begin with. We get an impromptu three-point stance, which Green wins. Mongo gets into control. He gets in the face of, apparently, Kevin Green's family. Green's mother then slaps Mongo with a presumably loaded handbag. Crowds start rallying behind Mongo, then another chunk of the crowd start booing him. Mongo takes a run-up and hits a punt. He follows that with a swinging net breaker. Green gets in a Thez press. Mongo returns with a tilt and whirl backbreaker of all things. A 10-punch by Green, but Michael responds with a drop kick. Green elevates himself off of the ropes and kicks Mongo across the ring. Green then takes Mongo over the top and then body slams him on the floor. Gets into an argument with Deborah. Brilliant. Green shakes the slide into the ring. Mongo attempts to drop an elbow and then Green sells a dummy and slides back out so Mongo s- smashes into the mat. That was really good. Green charges Mongo in the corner and Mongo moves. Deborah distracts the ref. Jeff Jarrett runs out. Ends up whacking Mongo, not Green, over the head with a Halliburton. Green pulls, having pulled Mongo into harm's way. Green pins him for the victory. Tom. How good is Kevin Green? How good is Kevin Green? Good Lord, I couldn't believe it. Uh, it's one of those things when you see this on the card, you think, oh, okay, right, this is going to be a glorified hand-holding match and uh, Stephen Michael's going to walk his way through it and Kevin Green will do a couple of clotheslines. No siree. Kevin Green is talented. He's quick. He's wild. He's got so much energy. What I would, I would say... This is, he doesn't work a similar style, but he's got the, an energy which I would uh, uh, align with Chris Benoit, where it's just he's so rabid all the time and, and so all over the place. And he looks like he wants to be there. He looks like he's ready to 
work his nuts off, and he did for the whole, what was it, nine and a half minutes of this match. Um, his forearms looked great uh, when he was laying them in on the ground on, on McMichael. Um, the stuff with his mum, that's fine. It, it, it worked. I didn't, I didn't, it probably added an extra minute to the match where I think they could have worked it. I didn't think he needed it, but, you know, I can see why they were doing it, him being a, a celebrity guest and all, and all that stuff. Um, he's so agile, and, and it, it, there's so much, so much I was impressed with. Impressed with That segment that he had with uh, Deborah that you alluded to, Bob, that could have come across as really hokey and really false, but it was really good. He screamed at her, get out of my face, and it was just, it, it was really genuine. So the guy, the guy can, can act as well, because it is acting, really. Is it? Uh, uh, although you did get the impression that he was so into it that probably half of it was acting, half of it was genuine. Um, you know, there was the, the briefcase finish. Uh, that was fine. And I, I, one thing I liked from Green, or I, I liked many things from Green, one thing I liked in particular is that someone with his experience for that finish, when, when Double J hit the briefcase, he could have very quickly jumped on him and got the pin. He didn't. He crawled over to the pin because he was selling the, the, the match that preceded it and the impact that it had on him. And that's, that's really good. So many times you watch these celebrity appearances and they don't know what they're doing and they've obviously done an hour's worth of training down at the gym. With one of the wrestlers, and there, but this guy, so impressive. Um, I, I'm, I really hope we get to see more of him. And uh, this was, this was a really enjoyable match. I really, really recommend that people check this out. Roy, how good is Kevin Green? He's bloody marvellous. That's what he is. This is his third professional match. He'd like to be doing this all of his life. It's one of the best babyface performances, if not performances outright, I've seen this year or any year. This guy just gets it. His timing is perfect. His selling is great. He hit all his marks. His transitions were on point. His facials were great. His moveset was absolutely fine. He hit the right moves when he needed to. He built everything perfectly. It was just a, an outstandingly brilliant performance, and he deserves all the credit in the world for doing this. Compare him with Reggie White last month, and uh, Thomas, the kind of thing you hit that there. I got the impression that he was there. You've been there with one, one or two of the wrestlers. He'd been taught four or five moves. He went out there with his match against McMichael. He did them fairly decently, but had no idea what to do for the remaining 10, 11 minutes. And it wasn't much of a watch because of that. Kevin Green showed how much professional wrestling there actually is. And if you dedicate your time to it, you reap the rewards. I, is this really, is this really Kevin Green? Is he really just uh, an NFL player on? <laughs> On brief release, he's been doing this all his life. Come on, I don't believe he's who he says he is. And even whisper it, I'm gonna. Well, this is uh, this is just between us three. I think Steve McMichael's improved a little bit as well, you know. So don't tell anybody I said that. So yeah, this was terrific. I even because when Mr. Charisma Jeff Jarrett turned up, I did groan. I thought it's a fucking briefcase again. But they even managed to make that work by giving a bit of comeuppance there. So yes. Was this a great match in its own right? No, but I wasn't watching that for that. I was watching it to see whether Kevin Green could live up to very high expectations. Some said that expectations were too high, but he did, and he exceeded them. He's, he has every right to be really, really proud of himself. This was a shockingly good match. Um, you know, yes, to a point, Roy, I think you are right to point out that Mongo is a better worker than he was a year ago to a point you are right to point that out um i don't think it's an overstep to say that kevin green is not the worst wrestler on this show i don't believe i'm overstating that i agree 
I don't believe Kevin Green, his third match, is a worse wrestler than Wrath or Mortis or Glacier or Conan or Hugh Morris. I don't know that he's not. For a guy that's, you know, his previous two matches were essentially, I will we'll put you in the ring with guys that know what they're doing, or, you know, you can do your spots, do your three-point stance, or, or practice a couple of set pieces. This was not a short match in the ring with a guy that is barely okay. You know, Mongo's probably Savio Vega type level, probably. And Green had a that that's that's praise for once. I, I did I, I did praise Savio on this month's Dodo show as well, actually. So you know, you haven't heard that yet. Um, Green was phenomenal. Like I, I can't, you know, like I think I was speaking to Eric about it earlier in the week, and he said, you know, the you know part of the reason is is that Green's got great feet. Because he, he has to be for his obviously his, his his NFL duties, and it just means his coordination's right there. But that doesn't explain all of this. That explains why the match was so smooth at points. But it doesn't explain how Green just got certain things so quickly. Um, that this was a good match by any standards. This was a good match. That's that's remarkable. For two ex-football players, one with 18 months' experience in the ring, I wouldn't even say it's an exaggeration to say Green's a better worker than Mongo is. Um, off of admittedly such a small sample. Like, you know, they're talking about, you know, Green could perhaps move into wrestling full-time once his football career finishes. My hunch is he won't, because as Dave Meltzer alluded to, you'll find out that his, uh, the amount of money he can, uh, charge working full-time is not significantly higher than the amount of money you can charge for working two matches a year. Um, but this was incredible. Um, Tom, I don't think I'm overstating that by saying it. This was a shockingly good match by two guys that had no right to have a match this good. Absolutely. Uh, here, here's, here's an open question for you guys. Can you think of an instance where a celebrity has appeared in a pro wrestling match and has put on a better performance than this? Stop the top of your heads because I can't. That's the reason. I, that's the reason I ask. I'm the only other one that that, that that kind of falls into mind, and you guys might be able to speak further back than '93 than I can. Um, Lawrence Taylor got a very good. Well, Bam Bam Bigelow got a very powerful match out of Lawrence Taylor. Um, yeah. But, but Bam Bam Bigelow is is 40 times the worker that Steve McMichael is. Yeah. Bam Bam was Bam was helping a lot there. Taylor worked hard in that match. Absolutely, I'm not taking anything away from him, but he needed to be in there with somebody like Bam Bam. Oh, I'm really trying to think of any celebrities actually been involved in. You might need to leave us on with me, Tom. Actually, yeah, no, I, also think it's <laughs> worth, I think it's worth it's worth adding there that he's not a celebrity as such. He, yeah, although Taylor is along the same lines, but he he is he's an athlete, and he's clearly like you could see when he did that like jumping uh, NFL star pin. They obviously thrown in some of that as well. It, I was just, I couldn't believe how good it was. I, I, I've never been so impressed. Um, and I think it, I think it is helped by the fact that you go in with low standards, having seen this happen before. And I, and I've got a horrible feeling that that's the way things are going to go with good old uh, Rod the Bod, which we'll talk about a bit later on, maybe. Um, but yeah, th- this is su- such a good watch, and he is really talented. I think he's in the wrong sport. No, he's not. I mean, he's he's a really fucking good NFL player, and I think he's got that. But as a fan, I, I don't. Well, I, don't mean, I I would love to see more of him and lots more of him, and I don't think it's going to go that way because I think going by what you said. But if you could get ten Kevin Greens on your card, uh, you'd be having, you'd be having a good show. The energy, unbelievable. 
Yeah, like that that that's the other thing as well. Like I think he the, the guy knows how to get reactions as well amongst everything else. Um just really, really good. I've got one, I've got one. Um well an, an example of why Green is the, the greatest living human being. Um Mr T V Roddy Piper from WrestleMania two. Oh yeah. Where the, where T just turned up for the, for the boxing match and T managed to get himself booed against Arch Uber Hill, Roddy Piper. So there you go. Kevin Green, you are the greatest. You're better than Mr. T. Clubber Lang himself could not even top Kevin Green. There you go. Let's, uh, let's move on. We cut backstage. Producer is in a lot of pain on a wooden table because apparently WCW have no actual treatment tables. NWO music hits. There's a big pop followed by quickly a lot of booze that drown them out. That's really good. There was just like this, this in, initial pop and then lots of booze. That was great. Um, we want to sell our main event. It's the outsiders, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash with six versus Ric Flair and Roddy Piper for the WCW World Tag Team titles. The first line of my notes simply reads, hype. Hall flicks a toothpick at Flair who shrugs it off. Flair hits some chops in the corner and then hits some shots as well. Say every Flair match these days, but he's just running through his greatest hits. Speaking of which, he does the Flair flip over the turnbuckle and then walks straight into a big boot from Nash. Six pulls on Flair's leg, enabling Hall to floor Flair with a big clothesline. Nash hits the sidewalk slam on Flair. Flair rallies with a low blow. Tony Schiavone says, I think he came up very quickly. That's one way of explaining it. Flair gets the tag to Piper, who pokes both guys in the eyes. Piper goes for a sleeper on Hall. How's this for a pop culture reference? Oh, from again. Piper goes for a sleeper on Hall. How's this for a pop culture reference, Rory? As Hall looks like he's competing in the Crystal Maze as he fights for life, trying to grab at gold and silver tickets. Uh, oh, he, get, get in there! Who's? There we go. There we go. <laughs> I'm, I'm back now. I'm back now. Here we go. Uh, he dumps there over the top rope. Six levels, Piper with a kick. Flair and Six brawl up the R-way and Hall and Piper are both spark out mid-ring. Flair has disappeared. Hall covers Piper, who kicks out. Piper looks for a tag, but there's no Flair. Piper rallies against Nash. This is 2-1 now. Piper walks into a big boot from Nash. Hall hits the outside edge, and that will do that. Rory? Who's the king of the pop culture references around here now, eh? I'm going to have to up my yeah. game. <laughs> Fruit pastels and crystal maze. That's the, that's the bar these days. <sighs> Setting it high. A mystery game. And who's to play this mystery game? You have three minutes from the time I close the door. That's enough now. Right, OK, this match. Yeah. Um... <laughs> they, they should have said that to Conan and Hugh Morris. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that they can stay locked in if, for if a very, very long this... time. If it takes longer than three minutes, you'll both get locked in until anyone wants to let you out. Yeah. Yeah, and he goes, they're locked in. Everyone goes, hey! I would not give up five seconds of my time to free them, I can assure you. Right, anyway, this this uh, wrestling thing we're talking about. Right, okay, yes. Um, star power towards the top of the card. And not a whole lot else going on here, really. Flair was game to run through, as you said, Bobby's greatest hits. Hall brought along most of his working boots, Nash and Piper. I think a lot of those, a lot of us who were in the know were watching their exchanges particularly closely, but they did cooperate with each other and nobody went into business for themselves, or if they did, they kept it very surreptitious. The match wasn't much. It was 10 minutes off of basic stuff. It was certainly better than the horror show they served up the week before. We now know this match is really a plot device to get to the Flair Piper breakup. They did it in an Awkward way. I'm not sure 
Blair would really be that obsessed with six that he would chase him out of the building and not come back for the match. I I could go with it on a good day. Uh, I also didn't really like, again, the creative control card people, that Piper was able to fight off Hall and Nash for what felt like an incredibly long time until he finally fell victim to it. Somebody who's only got eye pokes and and sleeper holes, I, I didn't really believe that. But it was okay. People got to see what they wanted to see. Oh, one more thing as well. I sincerely hope that Scott Hall's finisher is not going to be called the NWO drop going forward. What a stupid name. Yeah, I, 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 as a cricket fan, call it outside edge. That's Absolutely. What that's what I've been going with. Hall, Hall did, I think he was meant to call it the outsider's edge at one point, but he did once call it the outside edge, so I'm going with that for now, even what regards to NWO drop. Bloody hell. Back, just call it the Razor's Edge, like, you know, or call it Splash Mountain, or call it anything other than the NWO drop. So what do you think? Yeah, dreadful, dreadful name. No, I liked this match, actually. I, 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 I guess I won't hide my adoration for Ric Flair from anyone. Uh, and I don't, I haven't watched as much of the WCW over the preceding months as you guys have, so I got immense enjoyment from watching Ric Flair in this match. Um, and to be honest with you, he took what all could and should and really was have been an average match and made it much more enjoyable than it should have been uh, for me anyway uh, that's a, that's a personal thing he 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 has a, a level of energy that um no one else in that ring did i thought that piper did a good job considering as rory says his limited uh, ammunition and his limited arsenal of of, of moves and skill sets um, scott hall was good in this match i thought he 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 did well kevin nash i, I just think that he reigns it in every time he, he phones it in he just doesn't he doesn't ever impress me. He always looks like he thinks that he's too good to be there. However, he plays the heel role well. Um, and there was, you know, there was the, the classic flair starts the match, works the crowd up. There's a hot tag for Piper. Piper comes in. You know, Flair rolls the crowd up again by pacing up and down the side of the ring. And I'm getting all excited when I shouldn't be because it doesn't deserve it. But it, it, it happens every time. Um, and and Piper came across as the hero for, as as Rory alluded to, fighting off the outsiders for far too long. Uh, he was like, he's on death's door. Oh, no, he's not. He's on death's door again. Oh, no, he's not. Okay, he's, no, he's actually going to die now. No, actually, no, he's not. Uh, too, went, went to the world too many times. Uh, and, yeah, the, the flair thing, I actually liked it. I, I When he went off with six, I did think to myself, it's unrealistic that he would be that bothered to disappear. But it did make me think, and I wonder if this was the intention. I think it must have been. It made me think maybe he did it on purpose. Maybe he left, maybe he left uh, Piper to the walls. Um, on purpose, so maybe you were surprised. And if, if that's true, that's actually very clever booking. Well, um, well it was, but that that yeah, they, and, and we're going to get to the, the them turning on each other in a couple of weeks. But it's like apparently they patched it up, and then Piper ends up turning on Flair because Piper gets into an argument with Michael and Benoit. Like it was, it was a very clever plot story or, or, or plot line as part of the story, but they never they never followed through on it. What was the point? Yeah, well, that's, that, I, I, you can say that about a lot of stuff with with WCW from this stuff this what time, can't you? Um, where we've got the setup, where's the payoff? Is a, is a common. Well, you can just have that as the tagline for their pay per views. Um, but no, this, this, I, I actually thought this was this was good and it, and it, it was fine. And it, although, really, as you said, it, it was a setup for what came after it. So. If I was there, I would probably feel a bit cheated that I didn't get the match that I wanted. Um, but I, I enjoyed it, and Ric Flair's my hero. So. I know this word is banned in WCW now, but Tom, is it time to start calling Ric Flair old? 
No. <laughs> if, 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 if you if you call Ric Flair old, I I will refuse to come back on this podcast. If you you know that, that, that's. <laughs> He's really starting to age. I mean, Ric Flair has, you know, Ric Flair started wrestling looking about, he was 28 years old. And then he got to the top and he immediately became 45. And he's been 45 <laughs> for about the last 15 years. But now he's really starting to age. And is, you know, physically, I don't think he's quite where he was even two or three years ago. But he's really starting to show it. And I'm not saying his popularity is declining. But he's he's really starting to look old, and that is a bit of a problem. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. But the thing is, is that he he, as I said, he brings an energy to this match that without it, it the match would have been quite dull and quite boring. And there's no one I can't well I can't think of anyone that is able to just rile a crowd up and elevate a match just by being the character that they are because of the history that they've got behind them because everyone knows who they are. It's very unusual to have someone like that. And although, yeah, he looks his age, he may be a few years older, he's Ric Flair and everyone knows that. And I think he gets away with that. And, and he never, he always puts a shift in. He's not like some of the other guys that we've talked about where he, he, he phones it in and he, he doesn't really turn up. He always turns up. Sometimes he, he like the last one, there was a match, uh, I think it was Slamboree, where he, he made the match so much better than it should have been. Um, and actually, he was more up for it than clearly uh, he was for this one. And I think on a, on a good night, Ric Flair can make a match excellent. Here, he made it good. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan, so I'm a bit biased. Rory, if he's not old, is he a fossil? Yes. <laughs> Although I do find that edict rather weird. It's <laughs> the, the, the whole band words in wrestling thing is a source of great, great confusion to me. Isn't somebody... Technically, calling somebody a fossil is not worse than calling them old. Doesn't old, to some degree, indicate some sort of status? Whereas, if you're a fossil, you're you've been stuck in the ground for sixty-five million years. Yes. Technically, is Hulk Hogan a fossil though? That's the important difference. I mean, fossils are haven't got quite as much rubbery skin as Hogan's got. You know, fossils don't come wrapped in leather. Um, so and they don't, they, don't, they don't have a fake beard either, do they? Well, that's your God. Hogan's fake beard. Like, he's been off shooting a movie, so, <laughs> so he comes back to WCW with no facial hair. He just paints it off. <laughs> like, nobody knows that at all. It's like, fuck's going on. Sorry, yes, back to the original question. Is Ric Flair old? In wrestling years, I almost don't think he is. I mean, he's doing this for 20 years now. He... Rick Flair's going to do this for as long as he wants to. The returns might start to diminish, but I don't think he knows anything else. It's, and judging by the, the company he keeps, as we will talk in one of the uh, segments we will talk about a bit later on, you're only as young as who you feel. That is true. That is true. I, I thought I quite like this match. Um, you know, it's star power. It's it's the you know it was a much more coherent match than the match they tried to have six days earlier. Um, and I don't mind the finish that they went with. I know some guys didn't think it made sense. I thought it set up Piper turning on Flair quite brilliantly, and yet they never went with it. Like, they set this angle up, and then they kind of patch their differences up, and then Piper turns on McMichael, who then inadvertently turns, Flair turns on Piper. It's like, the fuck, we'll get to that. Anyway, to the main event. Michael Buffer describes this match as a match where there must be a winner. What are all the other matches then, is my first question. He then says it's a lights-out match. If you go back a couple of years, I think it was 
I have a feeling it was Big Bubba and Sting. Yep. Might be wrong. Lights out match, which was just a normal match. But this time he says it's a lights out match and the lights actually go out. But don't hold your breath. They're, they're going to come back on. Anyway. Move on to the... Well, move on. The main event. Randy Savage with Miss Elizabeth versus Diamond Dallas Page with Kimberly Page in a lights out match. Page blindsides... I should explain. Lights out basically is a false count anywhere. No disqualification. Page blindsides Savage for like the fourth rush start of the night. Page goes for the diamond cutter right out of the gate. Savage escapes and dies to cover on the floor, so Page flings himself at him. Savage put Liz in harm's way, so Page just throws her aside and continues the attack. Page throws Savage over the top, who cracks his foot off of the camera. We break towards the wall deep in the crowd. Page sends Savage through a fire door, then picks up a crutch. He waits for Savage to walk back through, then cracks him with it in the chest. Back in the ring, Savage gets some power sorts and blinds with powder of sorts, sorry, and blinds Page with it. Page goes to hit Savage with something. Savage picks it up and smashes it over Page's head. Given how it shatters, shattered, I'm going with a vinyl record as well. Roy, you're you're an expert in vinyl. Does that sound about right to you? Uh, I haven't. I've never tried to smash into my records over anybody's head. Although I've been tempted once or twice, but let's go with it. Okay. <laughs> it's not as bad as that time where uh, they, 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 they it was about four or five months ago they thought someone got hit with a VCR that they took from the crowd or something like that they never quite worked that one out either fans start chanting for Sting the rest starts going at Sarge for beating up Paige Sarge spits in his face then decks him then Paul drives him Paige hits a headbutt Mark Curtis comes out and gets thrown out of the ring Paige come to, comes to and gets a second wind only to run into a straight into a knee from Savage Sarish backs Kimberly into a front row of fans. I hope the fans are plants as their hands are very close to some paces on Kimberly that they shouldn't be. We now brawl up the R way towards a literally a picnic area. I'm not kidding. This isn't wasn't quite fake concession stand uncensored ninety five. It wasn't far off. Um, because <laughs> a part of this picnic area apparently was a barbecue, which seems a bit preposterous given that it was indoors. <laughs> Page smashes a plant pot over Savage's head and then dumps him through a picnic table. That looked really nice. We brought... Don't give ECW any ideas. Not that you can stack picnic tables very easily. We brought back into the ring. Page pulls Savage nut first into the ring steps. Page hits a flapjack pedigree kind of thing. Savage returns with a jawbreaker. Page gets lowered by Savage. Savage then goes after a photographer. Bobby Heenan then brilliantly says, quote, Savage has snapped, because he's going after a photographer, quite like that. Page hits Savage with a chair. Page rolls Savage back into the ring. Savage low blows him. Savage goes for a diamond cutter. Page slides out and hits a diamond cutter himself. So I'll try it again. Savage goes for a suplex. Page slides out and hits a diamond cutter. Outruns Scott Hall. Patrick comes around to make the count, but Hall just kicks him in the head. Page fights off Hall, but Savage nails him with the Hall's title belt. Hall hits an outside edge, or at least he tries. He recorrects himself and then dumps Page onto the mat. Savage hits a top rope elbow drop. Hall helps Patrick into position, who counts to three. This may have run long because the show went off air about ten seconds after the match finished. Rory. Great work from both guys. I want to get that out there now. And Savage's best in-ring. And out of ring performance, in my opinion, since his match with Flair at Great American Bash two years ago. They worked incredibly hard and they gave us a worthy main event. There's a however coming here, as you might have guessed. The stipulation wasn't played the way I would ideally like for what's supposed to be a blood feud. 
when we go out to that garage door type thing when you have Savage just sauntering through it so Paige can hit him with a crutch, I could just about buy that. I cannot buy them finding a picnic area. And why would there be a picnic area miles away from the ring which isn't even facing anywhere anyway? Why would there be a picnic area full stop? Yes, I mean, who who comes along to wrestling shows with a thermos flask and a, a, a tub of sausage rolls? And <laughs> to have a picnic with a barbecue indoors 10.30 at night. <laughs> I think it says all that when you were doing the, the play by play, I actually laughed at that bit. I shouldn't be laughing at anything to do with this feud in a good way, but I was. And you've got Paige hitting him with a plant pot. That's, and you said it best yourself, that's uncensored 95. Harlem Heat being covered in mustard for what's supposed to be these two guys despise each other. And that took me out a bit, to be perfectly honest. It's almost a done thing these days. If you're going to have an around the arena brawl, then you just need to go to funny places and hit each other with cool stuff. And that's not supposed to be the point. I mean, when you had Benoit and Sullivan at Great American Bash last year, when that ended up in the gents, that's because you, you felt that they were they couldn't contain their hatred for each other they were brawling outside the arena. That's just where they happened to be. Now, here I just thought they went to a picnic table because somebody in the back thought that would be a cool, funny idea. And that did dip the intensity levels a bit. And it dropped my enjoyment of the match quite a lot as well. So this is only really my third, fourth favourite match of the night when I went in hoping it would be my number one. But both guys worked incredibly hard. Savage had to win this one to keep this one going, and he did. And one more thing at the end as well. I will say, I think, and DDP at the end, if you watch just before we go off air, he's actually smiling. I think that's because he's been legitimately knocked loopy by both the botched-ish outsider edge and the fact that Savage caught him flush in the head with that elbow. That's suffering for your art. So yeah, worthy main event. Both guys, it, yeah, it didn't quite have the seriousness that it required. Maybe that's coming next month. Mm. Should be happier than this, really. Tom, I really liked. I love. Well, I'm not. No, I'm not going. I'm not going to undersell it. I loved this match. I thought it was re- I really, really good fun. Um, I, I wouldn't disagree with the points that Rory made. However, I think a lot of it comes down to personal taste. There's a lot of ECW influence in this, and I always liked and do continue to like the ECW style of, even if it doesn't. If, even if it's not pro wrestling, you're going to enjoy what you're watching. And watching Randy Savage and Diamond Dallas Page in a match of that nature was hugely entertaining to me. Uh, and I, I can only agree with what, what Rory said about you know Savage putting in the best performance he has done in a couple of years here. Because these guys took their lumps and they took them with seeming pleasure. Uh, it, it, there, was, there was everything in this match. There was powder. There were signs. There were this, this picnic thing. I've got, I've got to talk about this. Now, obviously, it was a setup. Obviously, it was set up. But didn't you, uh, Rory, were you, did you really not, did you, you find yourself being taken away from it? I just found it so enjoyable watching him get thrown through that table and just thinking, people, imagine if you were in a park having a picnic and, and Randy Savage and DDP well, turned and up. And a wrestling match spontaneously combusted around you. Like, how imagine it. that be? It would be amazing. It would it be... make no sense. So, but, but, but if it was Randy Savage and DDP, you'd be like, oh, sorry, lads, get out of the way. I'll, I'll take a sandwich with me so I can, so I can eat while I'm watching it. <laughs> Who has a picnic at 11 o'clock in the evening? WCW fans. 
Look, it makes no sense, but as of so much we've said about WCW, you, you've just got to go with it, I think, to a degree. So I was all in for this. There were a couple of things about it that annoyed me, like like the, the amount of involvement that the referees had when they kept getting involved in trying to stop it and getting decked. It's actually meant to be a no disqualification match, so the referees shouldn't be involved at all, unless it's getting to the point where one of them looks like they're going to die, and it didn't get to that point. You know, the ref was climbing on the second rope and trying to get involved, and... One of them took a, a nasty bad pile driver that you mentioned, Bob, from from Savage, and that, that you know that was re- it, it was sold well. Um, I just I, I I thought that DDP was really working for this, and it, he absolutely uh, deserved the credit that he got from this. And actually, it's you know it really helped to to keep him in that main event picture because Savage has been there before. But again, both just put a shift in here. It was it was wild. It was brutal. Um, you know, Macho attacking a cameraman. I love that. It was crazy. I, I love matches like that. So I, I find it hard to critique it. Um, uh, and again, we had the NWO reigning supreme at the end of it, which is, you know, as we've said, that's that's commonplace here. But no, I, I really, really liked this. Yeah. Um, you know, I can be a bit picky over certain things. It was probably worth it for the picnic table spot. That was really nice. Um, I feel like two months ago they tried to have a really good match and fell short. I think this month they tried to have a really good match and they actually just about managed it. Um, this was really good. You know, I think that it's what's fascinating is is that Hogan is so popular full stop that even as a heel in a in places where that people want to boo him, he will still get cheered. Nash and Hall are the cool guys, so they'll get booed and cheered. But yet the one guy in the NWO that people seem to unanimously dislike does seem to be Randy Savage. Um, I think what also helps that formula is that Paige is a babyface that people can get behind and a babyface that is not particularly infallible or is in, I can't remember which one I'm trying to work out now. He's not particularly, you know, he's not the kind of babyface that looks like a mug a lot of the time he's not Lex Luger to a point he's not the giant he's not the kind of babyface that walks into stupid situations he's the kind of babyface that five or six months ago when he was faced with a you know he was wrestling I think Mark Bagwell and two or three guys of the NWO went out he didn't try and fight them he just fucked off like Paige is a very likeable guy Sarge is a guy that is very easy to dislike and you have those two situations one guy people can root for and one guy people can root against, put them in a very good match and brawl around the arena and have what was a very, very good match. You know, forget my issues with, you know, some certain convoluted spots. It really worked. This was the best, you know, whether it was better than last month's main event depends what you're looking for. Because as a match-wise, it was incomparably better. But, you know, Marston's main event was great for different reasons. It was probably the best in-ring main event since Great American Bash this time last year, I would think. I don't think I'm forgetting anything there. Um, and, yeah, Paige is, Paige is where Steve Austin was at about four or five months ago. Like, Paige doesn't feel out of place in the spot. And that's a credit for all con- credit to all concerned. Sarah's in particular, but also WCW for the way they booked him. Paige is a guy now that if they wanted to, you could put in a you know, pay-per-view main event against Scott Hall and it would probably work. Um, and they they deserve a lot of credit for that. But a really, really good match. Finish was a bit up and down. We probably didn't need to, you know, if you were going to do this, I mean, admittedly, if you are going to continue the feud, Paige couldn't win another one cleanly. So they had to do something like this. But it's the, 
you know, WCW's problem is they do screw finishes when they don't need to, which means that this feels like number four or five, whereas if you only do if this is the first or second on the show, it's not quite so bad. Anyway, Rory, your overall thoughts on this show and a score running out of ten. Or what I believe is supposed to be an A grade pay per view. Um this didn't hit the heights it should have. But when you consider the amount of superstars who aren't on this show, no Hogan, no Sting appearance, no Luger, no Giant, even somebody like Ray, for example, wasn't on the show. There was a lot to like here, and as we've talked through it, I've actually upped my mark a little bit from where it was. I don't need to recount the bad. I hope we never have to talk about that again. I'd rather suspect we will. I think one of the matches is going to become a bit of a touchstone going forward, for better or worse. Sorry, for worse or worse. But there was a great opener here. A virtuoso performance from a non-wrestler, which everybody has to go out of their way to see. And an exciting main event, despite my problems with it. So I'm actually going to up my original score to a 6 out of 10 for Great American Bash 97. Tom? I uh, enjoyed the pay-per-view, uh, not consistently, but overall I feel that it is worthy of your time. I feel that um, there were few lazy performances, but there were some in there, but it's hard not to find that in any pay-per-view. Uh, I thought that there were at least three really good matches in here for you to watch. There's an outstanding performance from Kevin Green and a main event which I found hugely wild and entertaining. Um, so I would give this a seven personally. Yeah, um, th- th- there were low points on this show, but I watched the second half of this show in a separate sitting, which probably didn't help my, my overall report on this. Um, I'd be surprised if there's another WCW show this year that has six matches as memorable as six of the matches on this show. Not better matches, but in terms of matches that people are going to remember in a few months' time. You're going to remember Hokuto Medusa. You're going to remember Green and McMichael. You're probably going to remember the tag match. You're definitely going to remember the main event. You're probably going to remember the opener as good as it was. And if you're like me, you might remember Benoit and and uh, 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 and Meng as being that kind of match. And you're definitely not going to forget Conan and Hugh Morris, as bad as that was. Um, yeah, I'll give this a 7.5 out of 10. Strong show. Hot crowd. Very enjoyable. I am here tonight to do what I do best, and that is making bacon! Now, for those of you that don't know me... There's nobody that doesn't know you. I'm much closer to Mr. Freeze than I am Batman. Absolutely. See, I think that Roddy Piper has been just a little bit too goody two-shoes for my liking. He's been running on unleaded, and from now on, Roddy Piper runs on pure nitro. Hi. I like that. Hi, Tess. You know why? Because when I'm good, I'm good. When I'm bad, I'm better. And I like myself when I'm bad. Because where Piper goes from now on, hell is going to follow. Now, I come here, hang on now. I have come here to clean up some rumors. Last Lamboree in a tag match, Ric Flair left me alone and decided to catch Conair home. Now, personally, 
I asked Ric Flair, I said to him, did you betray me? I looked at Pinocchio, his nose didn't grow, he said no. I got no reason to believe that Ric Flair, my longtime friend, would ever betray me. I want to put that to rest. However, Ric Flair does have his quirks. Do you know, do you know why Ric Flair dates two girls at the same time? That way, when he falls asleep, they got someone to talk to. Yeah. Oh, my. The nitro after the pay-per-view begins with another limo. The NWO big hitters emerge, including Dennis Rodman. He and Hogan head to the ring whilst chomping on cigars. Bischoff does the Hulk ear cup and looks like a total burk. Hollywood says that when you've got four times world champion Rodman on your side, you are guaranteed victory. Bra. Rodman then gets the mic and seems to think he's a babyface. He's looking forward to taking on the giant and Lex Luthor. Glacier is up against Mortis in the first match. It's a short one as Mortis gets whipped into wrath and Glacier hits the karate kick. Once more, he's saved from a post-match beatdown by Ernest Miller. Jean is here with Medusa. Last night was the end of her wrestling career. She gives tearful thanks to everybody who has made her who she is today. Goodbye and I love all of you. That seemed almost entirely legitimate. Dean Lenko is in the ring with a microphone. He calls out Guerrero and gets him. Well, Chavo Jr. anyway. Dean wins with a cloverleaf. Eddie stares out Dean from the gangway and allows him a small smirk. Super Kalo versus La Parker is next. Kalo wins with a reverse Rana. Parker again bashed him with a chair. Plastic this time in the aftermath. Luger and Giant are out for an interview. Lex mockingly suggests he and Giant throw in the towel. Giant has the guts, the guns and the choke slam. Come and get it. Lex lays down a challenge to Hogan and Rodman. The amazing French Canadians face Harlem Heat. Tony reminds us that Colonel Parker and Seri almost got married last year. Sometimes continuity isn't always the best thing. A book of spin kick puts down Jacques for the win. JJ Dillon announces a rematch for next week between the Heat and Stein as Vincent comes out to run his mouth and the Heat drew the number on him. Six's Cruiserweight Tart is on the line against Ray at the top of our number two. As you would expect, there's a lot of excellent stuff in this match. Ray actually fights off the interfering outsiders but then falls victim to the buzz killer. Nash powerbombs Ray then takes the mic. The wolf pack is the strongest beast in the jungle. Hall chips in and gives a special treat to everyone in Chicago. A real icon, Macho Man Randy Savage. His win yesterday was sweet. Past, present and future, nobody better. DDP shows up in the rafters. He's found himself a tag partner and everyone knows who it is. He challenges Hall and Savage to a match at Bash at the Beach. Ultimate Dragon vs Chris Jericho is about to start before Ono offers Jeff an envelope full of cash. The Lionheart rejects him and the match is really on. Dragon wins with a disappointing contest with a Tiger Suplex. Lee Marshall is in my con. He's really stretching for these weasel, weasel gags now. Gene introduces Piper. He doesn't believe the rumours that Flair left him to the walls. He brings out Rick so he can find out once and for all. Flair assures him they're friends forever and they'll never leave Piper's side. They shake hands and all seems well. 
Buffer Norton are up against Jarrett and Mongo. After a few minutes, McMichael gets in and struts with Jeff and then hits a tombstone onto a huge reaction from the Chicago crowd. Jarrett then easily picks, is then easy pickings for Bagwell to get the pin. Our apparent main event is Hogan and Robin versus Luger and Giant. Robin and Hogan then threaten to leave as their opponents haven't turned up. Just in time though, here they are. Giant immediately goes for a chokesar. Robin, he lifts him miles into the air but Hogan saves. Robin then returns the favour with a belt shot after Giant goes after Hogan. The NWO make their way down and get the usual spray paint show. In an odd juxtaposition, the crowd are both throwing garbage into the ring and cheering. Equally strange is Tony putting over Robin's courage as we go off the air. Gene welcomes us to Macon, Georgia on June 23rd and we start out hot with a DDP interview. Gene asks for clues to his tag team partner for Bash at the Beach. DDP won't tell us though because he likes surprises. He can't wait to see Hall and Sarage's faces. Kimberly then says she has spoken to JJ Dillon and secured a match between Page and Hall tonight. La Parker and Damien face public enemy. The fans don't care until Rocco sentons Damien through a table. Immediately though, La Parker hits Grunge with a chair. Steel one this time to pinch the three count. Gene grabs a word with Eddie. He sent Chavo out last week because he's not medically cleared yet. Chavo appears and seems to doubt the story. Eddie then offers his cruiserweight title match versus Sick Collector tonight for his nephew, who grudgingly accepts. Alex Wright shouts at the camera that he couldn't care less about Americans, so it's just as well he has a rematch with Chris Jericho. Good stuff here as Jericho wins with a very painful looking Boston Crab. The Steiners and Harlem Heat do it all over again for the number one contendership to the tag titles. It's a far superior to their PPV effort. We even get a clean-ish finish when Booker gets shoved into Sherry and Rick hits a top-rope bulldog, just about, for the win. Norton and Buff are now a tag team called Vicious and Delicious. They make vague threats to the Steiners on the mic. Rick and Scott don't care though if they just want Hall and Nash next week. Here's a personal training session with Ernest Miller. We learn he's very good at martial arts. Who'd have thought that? Viano 4 is against Hector Garza. Larry wonders if it's under Mexican rules. Garza wins with a standing moonsault. Oakland interviews Luger and Giant. Lex is sickened and disgusted by what happened last week. WCW officials have assured them that the match at Bash at the Beach quote, will be done on equal footing. Giant wins... Giant will slap Robin and Hogan and we'll see who loses their hair dye first. Chavo vs Six is up next, with Six on the outside, Hall interferes and gives Chavo the outside edge. Six gets back in, locks in the buzz killer and that's that, and he doesn't seem to mind. With Jarrett apparently on horseman probation, we're treated to Michael vs Conan. Hugh Morris waddles down to ringside, thankfully there's no repeat of the bash fiasco as Mongo wins with a tombstone. Lee Marshall is having a nitro party in Las Vegas. It's a very quiet one. Gene Oakland is out talking to Roddy Piper. When I'm good, I'm good. When I'm bad, I'm better. He playfully rags on Flair a little before pensive-looking Nature Boy walks out. When Flair chased Six from the ring at Slamboree, not quite Rick, it was best for all concerned. Before he can get much further, Mongo, Benoit and Deborah turn up. Piper isn't happy with Flair's cronies appearing. Mongo calls Rick the team captain. Then he and Benoit go Piper. Flair appears to side with Roddy until Piper snaps and slogs the horseman. Flair briefly appears conflicted, then attacks Piper. He puts the boot in on Hot Rod while Mongo and Benoit apply a beatdown. Glacier and Ernest Miller kick their way to the victory of a high voltage. Mortis and Rath tease the running, but think better of it. 
As promised, our main event pitched DDP against Hall. After a few minutes of good action, Savage runs in for the DQ as Paige calls for the diamond cutter. They beat him up, but Sting is in the crowd. He points his baseball bat at the heels and then comes down to the ring. We go off the air with him attacking Hall and Savage. Is DDP his tag team partner? Rod, let me reiterate my comments of last week. You are my friend. I will stand by your side. And the decision that I made at Flamboree to chase six out the door was in your best interest, my best interest, and in the best interest of that tag match, pal. I don't know about your best interest, but you left me to the wolves. But I'm not dissing you. Millions of other people don't believe you. I believe you. And what do you think millions of people thought about me wrestling Hall and Six and Nash while you were floating around the Caribbean with Jenny McCarthy, pal? Hey, 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 hey. Whoa. Hey. Hey. That says Icon. This says Ric Flair. But all I'm here tonight is to help you avoid a disaster, pal. Do not make the mistake of questioning me. Do not put me in Oh my. Now, now, now look where we're at. What do we got? Dante's Peak? I'm not looking for disaster here. We got horsemen out here. It looks like the troops are amassing, perhaps around the nature boy Ric Flair, Chris Benoit. This is what I was trying to help you avoid. Avoid, 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 avoid what? What's with the entourage, Rick? Please, please, please. This is between Ric Flair and Roddy Piper. It's as simple as that. A couple of things to discuss before we finish the show. We'll start on show week four of Nitro. So, Roddy Viper comes out uh, and, you know, says his bit. Says he and Flair have, you know, he says he, he has no problem with Flair doing what he did at the pay-per-view, which doesn't really make sense. Then Flair comes out and they have their back and forth. You'll have just heard it. Then Michael and Benoit come out. And then Piper takes a shot at, uh, I think it's Michael, one or the other. A Flair gets a bit mad, you know, as, as they start fighting. And Flair takes a shot at Piper. And the whole thing breaks down. And Tom, uh, you know, the WCW have been playing this term for a while. They've botched it on more than one occasion. Um, I kind of feel like this was a poor execution of what could have been quite an interesting plot point. Yes, I would agree with you. However, I... I... I cannot talk about these things unbiased unbiased when Ric Flair's involved because I think that he did a very good job of... Because um, what happened here was that, obviously, as you said, Piper was in the ring with McMichael, etc., and, and, and Flair. And you, you, if you watch Ric Flair, he looks like he's angry that the situation has got to the point that it's got. And I almost got the impression that, and I may be looking into this too much, I, I got a feeling that Flair had a different plan for how it would go down. And I think that plan was always going to be him turning on Piper. But I don't, I think he, due to the respect that he has for Piper, he didn't like the way that it went down because I think he wanted to handle it differently. Which is why even, even after they all started attacking Piper, Flair was jumping up and down, almost kicking the ground. 
and that's a, again that's a really nice touch because it's it, it, it's just it adds a layer of complexity to a story which actually was a bit convoluted and a bit all over the place um but i, I liked that um it should have been better it, this should have been a classic uh, i i'm disappointed that we didn't get a better payoff um because these two guys are legends absolute legends in this sport and this is not a legendary uh angle uh, it won't it won't go down as a legendary uh, moment ma- memory. You know, you would hope there'll be a payoff in a, in a great match between the two. But you know, they're in the latter stages of their their careers as well in terms of their their quality in ring quality. But I, I I thought this was I thought this was um com- it was not competent. It was okay, and I and I got enough enjoyment out of it. But it could have been a lot better. Rory, I think they've got this completely arse backwards. Flair's almost a babyface in this, isn't he? Think about it. He's got a rivalry with six. The Great American Bash, he beats them up. And I made my well, comments about that earlier. Piper's meant to be the heel. The original iteration of this turn was Flair was getting beaten up by the NWO and Piper was meant to stall in kind of Flair's defence for eventually doing it. Now, of course, not for, you know, speak about fuck time cues this month. They, that, they screwed that up as well. But the idea is Flair to be the heel, which kind of makes sense. I think, you know, WC trying to get Flair booed is tricky. Um, but yes, I wouldn't otherwise disagree. Carol, Roy. The story has well. The, I think the story has been built for Flair to be the heel in this, but he's not coming across it at all. Piper just coming across like a bit of an arse. I mean, why shouldn't Flair, in kayfabe terms, you know, why, why shouldn't why can't he be friends with Piper and McMichael and Benoit? Why can't he be? If Piper's got a problem with that, that's his issue. It's not Flair's. And I thought Flair selling conflict during that. Uh, during that segment on Nitro was uh, was really, really good. Piper just looks like an arse in this, so maybe they should have just got stuck with the original plan and kept him heel here in the first place. I, it's got us debating debating it, but not in the way they would have wanted. I think they've, they've messed this one up. Yeah, I think they've bungled a, you know, a potentially quite important angle. Um, you know, it didn't really make sense like this is a beef between Piper and Flair. They had the, they had the important turn, like Flair racing off to, to chase six and leaving Piper one on two, okay it makes Flair the heel unless Piper uses it as a catalyst to turn on Flair um, but that was the important plot point and they just completely folded that deck and then tried to come up with something else it was just weak um, all very very strange I mean, I, I, I think Flair and Piper can be a big match so if you're going to do Flair Piper do you really need to turn anybody? Really? It's pretty much going to get cheered whatever happens. Well, it's WCW, isn't it? To a degree, yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, I, I think it probably helps. I mean, okay, for once it'd be a Bayface Bayface match. Um, it probably helps. I mean, unless you want to just call it a, you know, a Legends match. And you know, if we talk about Flair getting old and two fossils, they don't want to. That's the thing. They don't want to present. These are two main eventers for this company. Whether whether age or time likes it or not, they don't want to present it as that kind of match. So you want to present Flair and Piper. If it's two baby faces, you probably end up presenting it as a Legends match. I don't know that you want to do that with either guy. So it makes more sense if it's a grudge match and then you have to have one of them heal. That probably would explain it. It's just weak. It's just, you know, like it's... It's it's Piper's got creative control. Like, you can book something better than this, Roddy, surely. Anyway, who knows, who knows. That's the one show number five. 
The final Nitro of the month begins with Flair in the ring with Gene. A couple of Flair's lady friends from Las Vegas bring out a mannequin wearing a kilt. It collapses almost immediately. Flair says Piper might be the icon in Hollywood, but when it comes to the sport of men, only the Nature Boy is worthy of the title. One of the women accidentally calls Rick the 32nd man, which is quite funny. He and his companions are going to party all night long. Oakland would join them, but his mother-in-law's watching. Chris Jericho won the Cruiserweight title on the non-televised Saturday Nitro two days ago, and he's defending against Hooventoot. Sadly, Hoovy has a bit of a mare on this one. Jericho gets that gets the duke with that Boston Crab. The former champ Six confronts him afterwards, and they brawl wildly. Suddenly, Vanilla Ice shows up. Oh, it's actually Alex Wright. He gives us the standard, the company held me down thing, and the segment collapses into nothing. Malenko is out to face Eddie, but Guerrero jumps in from behind immediately. When the match gets going, it's a short but excellent TV affair. Chavo comes down to cheer his uncle on. Eddie shoves Malenko in, into him and then wins with the frog splash. We get an interview between Gene and Ray. He's tired of being pushed around by the wolf pack because he needs to know if he can beat Nash. Kev Sorton is out and says that we should do the autopsy tonight and Mysterio accepts. Bischoff and Hogan are in the ring. Hogan says next to nothing. In fact, he doesn't seem asked about anything other than his party tonight with Rodman. Hector Garza has a shocker against Regal. The stretcher ends things. The Steiners still want Hall and Nash. The Outsiders emerge and Scott has his contract in hand. The brothers sign without reading, thereby missing the, op- the stipulation that they only get the target shot this time if they can beat Chona and Muta first. Psychosis pins Super Kolo with Sonny Ono's help. A Parker hits Kolo with a wooden chair post-match and Hoovy sees the heels off. Flair Benoit and Mongo take on Bagwell, Norton and Chono. It quickly breaks down as Vincent attacks McMichael for the DQ and gets whacked with a Halliburton for its trouble. Mortison Ralph versus High Voltage also doesn't last long. Miller runs in and kicks Mortis behind the rest back, allowing Rage to score the quick pin. It's limo time again. The commentary team believe that long-mooted major impact player could be there, but nobody's opening the door yet. The camera spots Raven sat in the crowd. His expression gives nothing away. Even when he realises he's about to watch Conan versus Jeff Jarrett. Horseman come to ringside before things can get too terrible and Flair helps Jarrett with the figure four. Despite that though, Flair goes on to sack him from the Horseman without explanation. Jarrett puts it down to professional jealousy and just slides it off. Nash vs Ray is next. Ray flies out the blocks the highest moves but Kev brushes him off. Hits the jackknife and pins Mysterio with one foot on his chest. Ray gets two extra power bombs for good measure. Conan emerges to tease helping Ray before giving him yet more punishment. Nash approves. Today he tries to get word from Raven, but he's got nothing to say. Nash, Hall and Savage versus Luger, Giant and DDP plays us out. Hogan creeps down to attack Giant and Luger and the B-team join him. DDP takes a kicking in the ring. Sting descends from the rafters, but we cut to the aisleway and it's Kurt Hennig. Raven jumps the guardrails. Our commentary team wonder just who the impact player is. Rick Flair, I don't know what you're trying to pull here tonight on Nitro. Is that supposed to be a likeness of Rowdy Rowdy Piper? What I'm trying to do, Mean Woo! Maybe I can help with the two young ladies. No, just kidding. It's tell the wrestling world. Oh, oh, oh. oh. Wait a minute. You know, last night I got a call 
12 o'clock at night. Piper's dead. Nature boy, I'm coming to Vegas. I'm sorry. Let's make up. I said, Hot Rod, I got two live ones. You can have them all night long. And look what's left of the Hot Rod. Now, the Hot Rod apparently did not fare too well last evening, if indeed that was the case. Who, who, are, who are these two lovely young ladies? They are the best that Las Vegas has to offer. Come here, girl. Wait a minute. Michelle and uh, Linda, yes, our cameras are this way. Let's turn it around if we could. What about this mannequin, though? You've got you've to say something about that. This young lady has a question for you, Mean Jean. And what might that be, my dear? Jean, I just have to know, why do they call him Hot Rod? <laughs> well, I can't get involved with that. That's a pr He's definitely not hot. Rod, uh, how, do, how do you get involved in this? We're trying to talk business. I guess what we're trying to tell the rest of the world is that when the nature bar is on the scene, that Roddy, 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 Roddy. Apparently, Ric Flair has told these ladies about his Woo! reputation that hey, supreme him. Piper, last week, you walked across the line. You tried to tell the nature boy how to wrestle a wrestling match. My friend, you might be the icon in Hollywood, but when it comes to the sport of wrestling, when it comes woo, to entertaining the lady, the sport of man, when it comes to taking me Gene out all night long, Piper, you stay home with the wife and the kids. Because you can't hang. Ask them. No way, baby. I've got a question for you. Michelle, is he truly the 60-minute man? What? More like 30 seconds. <laughs> oh, you're talking about Piper. You couldn't be talking about Flair. There it is, the kilt. Here, it's all that's left of one of the truly great wrestling legends. Is what I'm trying to tell you. Icons apparently are made of. So, Roddy, Hot Rod, let me lay you down to rest. I assure you there is nothing under there. And there's more, apparently. There's a little, uh... Let's have a moment of silence for the man formerly known as Hot Rod. Well, in all due respect, Ric Flair, I don't think this crowd is going to go along with you. Mean Gene, the girls in lieu of Roddy Piper falling down in the job. Hey, hey, my mother I'm bringing life. you to the party, Las Vegas Central, WCW. Come on, girls. We're going to be here. Woo! Live all night long. Woo! Woo! So two things to finish. We start with this opening segment. So, Oakland's in the ring and out walks Flair flanked by two women. 
and they're carrying a, a top half of a mannequin dressed up in a tartan beret and a scarf and they put a kilt around it and the kilt falls off etc etc and for the next five or six minutes it's basically just Flair and Oakland dicking about so <laughs> gets the mic and he says Piper called me on Saturday I said Roddy I can't talk now I'm busy I've got two live ones what's the way of describing it (laughs) Flair just messes about talking about Piper and that kind of thing and the segment's not really going anywhere Piper's not in the building yet etc etc and then then at one point like Flair just walks around the ring for a bit and Oakland goes to one of the women he goes is it true is is he really a 60 minute man and the first woman just doesn't hear him. And then the other one leaves it and goes, no, he's really a 30-second man. And it's just like, what the fuck is this? Because the woman thinks she's being set up to make a line about Piper, even though Oakland's clearly asking about Flair. Tom, it's just... I mean, it'd be, it'd be rubbish if it wasn't so brilliantly entertaining. Yeah, I, I again, I can't, I can't critique it. I, I just enjoyed it so much. It... it, it it had obviously a purpose of selling Ric Flair trying to make Piper look stupid and taking his heritage and making all that. But it, it was just they obviously hadn't rehearsed it, and maybe maybe Flair was a, had a few drinks beforehand. It was bizarre. Those girls had clearly not been told what was going to happen. They, you know, they, they just put them on Flair's arms. And and let's be honest, Flair did have a couple of wild ones with him. In this instance, uh, although they weren't no, that wild. No, he said wild. He said live ones. Oh, live ones. Sorry. Okay. Well, they were they were live, but they went off script. So, um, no, it, there's not a lot to say about this really. But it, it really is worth watching. It's five minutes of your time, and it's Rick Flair and Gene Oakland just clearly thinking, "Fuck it, let's just let's just let's just say what we like." And there was there was so little point and script and, and structure to the whole thing. It was really weird, but I loved it. I, I, I could have watched another ten minutes of it. Roy? A couple of months ago, Flair just grabbed the mic and for about 10 minutes he irrelevantly rabbited on about various matches from his entire career. Oh, in 1983 I faced Dick the Bruiser and in 93 I faced Randy Savage, 92 actually, which has nothing to do with anything. Uh, this didn't really have anything to do with anything either, but it was a million times more entertaining. It was just fucking great. I legitimately cracked up when he recounted the conversation where he said I had a couple of live ones. Oh, thank God for that. Where else are you going with that? And a line that is going to stick with me just as the segment was ending is when he, he offered his bevy of beauties to Mean Chief. And Gene Oakland responded, I would, but my mother-in-law is watching. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, he would actually do it. Yeah. Again, once an oily used car salesman, you know the rest. I'm not sure it was really achieved anything. It was bad. If there ever was the time for the crowd to chant, leave her alone, it was definitely <laughs> this moment. Brilliant. Brilliant. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Just fantastic entertainment. You could just about... I mean, if the, the mannequin thing always didn't need to be there. This is just Flair doing what Flair would have been doing on that Saturday night and probably on that Monday night as well. But isn't, isn't Ric Flair great, though? And I know I've said this, but there's no one else that can do that, is there? And be so entertaining and, and say so little, but just be such... Oh, it, it, I, I just think the guy could, uh, could talk about anything and it would be entertaining. I, I, I loved it. Check it out if you can, if you, if you missed it, listeners. It's just, just 
brilliant. It doesn't always have to make sense, but if it's entertaining, we'll take it. Yeah, I mean, it's just like you know, that's the thing. I call Flair old, like like Flair starting to look old, but he's still brilliant. I mean, there's no, there's a, that's never in doubt. Um, the final talking point of the month is an interesting one. Kind of came out of left field. I mean, Rey Mysterio has not been on television for a while. Um, and they were talking potentially about him having knee surgery. Apparently, the latest opinion he's got is that he, I don't think he'll need surgery, but he could do with resting it for a couple of months. Um, and, but Nash, speaking of Kevin Nash, decided that he wants to work with Mysterio, which to a point makes sense. Um, and also, if Mysterio's going to take a couple of months off, it makes sense to write him off. And they've, one thing they've been doing a fair bit this week is video packages, which I think is probably the most significant step from Taylor from where Terry Taylor from where Kevin Sullivan was in that they're funny enough they're building Benoit Sullivan next month using video packages and they've shown us kind of video packages and highlights of Mysterio's running with Nash in the past um but Rory I, I don't know that how, you know and Dave Meltzer said you know there's a reason sometimes where you don't put the Giants with the little guys because it just doesn't look right and I don't know that Nash killing Mysterio for two minutes was all that productive what did this prove is this just Nash trying to exert his backstage superiority out there in the ring that's what it looked like to me and it made me feel very uncomfortable Nash and Mysterio what history do they have there's the Lord Dark thing, which is still one of the most iconic images of this entire run. And that's pretty much it. So this is nationally... Well, a couple of other run-ins. I mean, they, have, they, they, they have, they have. But I wouldn't say they're necessarily warranted in storyline terms of race saying enough is enough, I want to fight Kevin Nash now. This just looks like Nash saying, yeah, my style of wrestling is the only one that really counts. Buddy, I'm going to squash you, you midget. And that's exactly what happened. A match that didn't need to be a match. One minute 30, no sales of offence. Power bombs and pins him with one foot on his chest and power bombs again twice for good measure. Didn't need to happen. Is this necessarily a burial of Ray? Nash is probably trying to tell you, hey, just being in the ring with me, buddy's enough, you know? But I didn't like this. They better have a mighty damn fine explanation going forward for it. That's all I'm going to say. I was going to say, Tom, I think to a point, the, the, the proof of the pudding will be in the follow-up. Um, but opening up, not the best start. I, I'm, not, I'm not desperate to see this rematch now. Mysterio just got killed. Yeah, I, I alluded to earlier the fact that Kevin Nash grinds my gears a little bit and he seems to be given lofty treatment for very little cause and very little justification. But, you know, Rey Mysterio is a guy that can can put on five-star matches and, and generally speaking, is very well-liked, very well-respected. And this this match bothered me <clears throat> quite a bit, to be honest with you. Um, there was very little in it that ma- felt that it made sense it was quick. It seemed ultimately pointless. Kevin Nash looked horribly smug at the end of it. The only thing I would say is that it did make Kevin Nash look superior. And it made him look cocky. It made him look arrogant. It made him look strong. So I guess for that reason it worked. But for all the reasons that we've talked about before and I've just alluded to, I don't think he should be in that position. Um, I, I, I hated this. I really, I, I really don't like the idea of where it's going either. Yeah... I'll, I'll, I'll give them enough to say I'm willing to see where this goes, but I'm not desperate to see it. But it wouldn't be the first time WCW has started a storyline in a way. Anyway, that will conclude this month's show. Rory McNamara, thank you very much for uh, stepping across the divide for a month at least to cover uh, to cover WCW. Uh, 
uh, it's been an experience. See you again for this one in about ten months' time. Something like that. Roy, uh, tell people where they can find you on Twitter. Uh, I am on the Twitters, uh, in name only at the moment, but you never know when I'll drop in there, at RawsDM, R-O-R-S-D-M. And Tom Martin, our regular UFC contributor, back in to uh, cover some wrestling. Tom, how was it? How was your uh, first trip back to WCW in a while? It was an interesting one. It was one that actually makes me remember the potential that the people on this on this roster have to actually put on some really good matches. And as we alluded to, there were some in this pay-per-view, but it also reminded me how incredibly frustrating it is to dip into this um, this time in WCW because of the potential that's there and because of what actually comes of it. So, no, overall, I enjoyed it. And, Tom, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at MarkOutMartin with a Y. Splendid. Just a reminder of this, you'd like to contribute to our patron. Five bucks a month, 17 cents a day. Thank you, Eric Lanstrom, for that. Uh, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling20yrs. Early access to shows where available, or just to say thank you for our incredibly anal look at wrestling from the mid to late 90s patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20rs links on the on our website and in the podcast description we've got three of the volumes for this month volume number one takes the king of the ring uh, with the WWF volume number three takes us to Wrestlepalooza with ECW the the final chapter of Raven and Tommy Dreamer uh, and well Raven speaking of which one guy we didn't mention Raven appearing on uh on WCW, we'll see where that leads next month. He was on the 30th of June Nitro, as was Kurt Henning, but again, did not really much happen. We'll pick up that next month too. Volume number four, when we tape it, we'll take a look at w, uh, WCW. We'll take a look at boxing as we take a look at vi- the uh, second of the Mike Tyson and Amanda Holyfield fights. Right, you can find me on Twitter at Boy Bambi. You can find the wrestling account on Twitter at Wrestling20YRS. Everything else you need is on Wrestling20YRS.com. And that's about it. So I've been Bob Bamba. This has been the volume two of the June 1997 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. And until next time, goodbye.